off the ball. It's not okay for him to be fine in a test match like that. It's a fulcrum position where everything runs through nine and ten. You don't get to be fine in in matches like that where you start. Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. All right, it's bang on half past seven. It's Tuesday morning. It's Jaron Shane with you all the way through until ten this morning. If there's anything you want to get off your chest, feel free. Oh eight seven nine one eighty one eighty is the WhatsApp number, or you can leave a comment on the YouTube stream. Um, Shane is a Manchester United fan, head of the field, seeing uh, your next striker, Cody Gakpo, <laughs> stick one in last night. He was good. Like easy. Ah, oh, you're talking yourself into it now. No, yeah. 120 million. I thought they were close to signing him, and then it just kind of backed backed off a little bit. Well, um, I mean, the Dutch team basically is the only shopping boutique that Eric Ten Hag likes, right? Well, scoring scoring World Cup goals, say he gets three or four World Cup goals, how many millions does that add to the price tag? Like when United are looking for you, it adds a certain amount anyway. But um, yeah, if Cody Gakpo scores goals like he did yesterday, perfectly timed run, nice little header, knowing that Edward Mendy was about to clatter into him and potentially take him out of it and uh, yeah he was very brave so mm. his runs are very good He's ins- and he's a big guy as well uh, I like him a lot and the Dutch were yeah I had them myself and my brother had a li- have little kind of group going last man standing sort of thing and most people in the group went for England yesterday naturally enough you get to pay- pick each team once I went for the Netherlands 84 minutes gone I'm thinking oh here we go <laughs> I'm out in the first week <laughs> it had all the hallmarks of a uh, nil all yeah like yeah I mean obviously it was nil all after 84 minutes so I'm not exactly um Gone out in a limb here, but uh, I think both both teams look pretty good. It's just that you start badly now. Senegal up against it. You start you start to think Senegal if they had Sadio Mane, what like what could they have done? I, I I just don't think they can progress too far in the tournament. Maybe they can get out of that group into the last sixteen. Um, given the other two teams in it are Qatar and Ecuador, but but if, like if if, if Ena Valencia stays fit and he keeps keeps scoring goals. You'd, you'd nearly back Ecuador to beat Senegal like in some ways yeah, look it's hard to know I mean they were playing against a pub team yeah well that's true um, but it's an interesting group uh, the Dutch you'd imagine will top it I'd like to see how far the Dutch can go under Van Hal because he, he's surely going to leave after the World Cup I think this is his last uh, hurrah with them um, but I really like them Frankie de Jong was a little bit eh, it was a little bit iffy yesterday I, I'm kind of wondering who are we who are we supporting as an Irish nation because a lot of people like this English team the Welsh seem to be the team that a lot of people are leaning towards but then we don't really like Wales either do we? Like every time we, we play them there's always that little bit of I have no problem whatsoever with the Welsh football team no. I just want to put that out there I saw I was getting tagged in tweets uh, John Duggan was like oh I'm going to support Wales and somebody was like oh not sure how Archer Aguilar was going to feel I, I feel fine about the Welsh football team it's just um, just a rugby team yeah <laughs> Big difference Completely different Yeah fair um, And they had the bucket hats In the crowd yesterday The red crimson wall As Clive Tilsley described it uh, And by the way That game had far more gravitas For me on TV When you have Clive Tilsley On commentary Compared to Sam Matterface In the English game uh, But that's, that's beside the point I have my, my opinions On commentators um, But the English team Looked good um, And that group Is going to be fascinating Because Wales and the USA Both looked like both looked good yesterday and England were playing Iran so let's be honest Iran aren't all the great chicks that, that we thought they might be they were tw- ranked 20th in the world they've had some some decent scalps in recent months um, but I feel like they, they just were poor um, you would assume that Iran are going to perform better after that first game like obviously everything that's going on uh, the decision not to sing the anthem is something that must have been discussed a lot must yeah. have you know it it it, it, it was pressure on those players that 
um, might have had an impact on the quality of their performance and if it did like, who, who could blame them so I would suspect he might get better across the group though that yeah. 6-2 is going to look like a, an outlier uh, and the fact that they scored twice against a, a pretty good England team um, and I, I guess the talk beforehand was Carlos Kiroz the way he sets up that Iran team it's going to be a low scoring game it's going to be tight and, and, and uh, not many chances but 8 goals it's not exactly what we expected um, and England were just super dominant I, like there were so many stories out of the game, like to see Rashford coming off the bench and doing what he did. Harry Maguire, <laughs> we kind of spoke before, and like, is Harry Maguire going to be brutal or is he going to be unbelievable? Because there was going to be no in between. And apparently, he was sick yesterday. There was a moment where people kind of thought he was maybe concussed, but Southgate said afterwards he was he was dealing with illness, um, but he still played really well, Harry Maguire. And like, United fans must be looking around going, what, like, where is this guy? When uh, again, you know. Let's wait and see. That's well, yeah, yeah, I'll give him a chance to to play the big teams, of course. I'll give him a chance to make some mistakes. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, like, fair, like you have to say fair play to him and and the English team. Like, you've Jude Bellingham scoring a header straight away, and you're like, this is okay. This is I like this team. Um, so you're 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 no, sorry, you're supporting England there. No, I like. I think it's a very like. Enjoy, enjoy your trip home to Monaghan at the weekend. <laughs> I think it's a likable England team. Uh, I certainly won't be supporting them in any stretch, and uh, certainly want Wales and, and the USA to to give them some. But uh, yeah, like even when Callum Wilson, like if you're through on goal, Callum Wilson in his first ever World Cup appearance, and you're thinking, shoot, come on, score a World Cup goal, and then he squares it to Jack Grealish. Very, very uh, generous of him, I thought. But uh, fair play to him. That's the, maybe the team ethos that Gareth Southgate has built up. And Southgate's been like, everyone's been like, oh no, his, he doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, picking Saka over Foden, what's going on there? Well, yeah. Uh, I, I, is that Saka over Foden, or was it Foden? Was Foden dropped for Sterling? Maybe, yeah, <coughs> maybe. Well, both both Sterling and, and Saka, uh, you know, vindicated their, and their Sterling's choice. Sterling's finish was sensational. Brilliant, yeah, yeah. England were really good. There, were, there was obviously issues, um, like, and I think Wales and, and the USA are going to be the big games for them. But um, yeah, ju- judging by yesterday's performance, that group is going to be one of the more hotly contested. Spectre Corp says the matches were pretty good yesterday. In fairness, and also says, what do we think of the length of added time so far? Could we see fifteen minutes at some point? <laughs> Obviously, there's fifteen minutes in the first half with the injury of the um, the in game. Yeah, the uh, Ryan goalkeeper. The I don't know where I don't know where I don't know it's uh, it's strange like it's interesting it's obviously it, a diktat given to the referees because it's it's happened in every game um, I I suppose it's more in game action less pauses uh, I don't know like in that heat with the players mid season is like it's probably the last thing they need but it's every game has gone what over a hundred minutes now in total so it's it's a strange one. Like, yeah, like how are they making money? That's what I, I'm like. How do FIFA? What, what are they? How are they deciding that they're going to make more money out of this? What's this about? What, uh, is it more, more airtime, more live playing? Is it better value for money for the American audience? Yeah, American audiences are way up, even for the opening fixture. By the way, um, so I, it's just an interesting the the thermonuclear dynamics of and Timothy uh, Weah scoring the goal, like famous name. I hadn't like, again. Look, obviously, fans of Celtic will have been familiar with Timothy Weah from his uh, his loan spell from PSG that time. He's playing with Lille at the minute in, in Ligue 1. But um, yeah, his story is a fascinating one. Like born in Brooklyn, to of course the famous George Weah, president of Liberia, and uh, what a player he is. He's good friends with Tyler Adams as well on that on that USA team. They have something good going. Uh, I like the USA team. Now I don't know how far they can go, but uh, there's just something about them. And then Wales' the first goal in the World Cup for 64 years. Of course, it was Gareth Bale that did it. Uh, definite penalty, and uh, the Welsh fans are probably amongst the the best fans of the tournament. You'd imagine. 
seem to be travelling there in numbers so that's good to see and they're not just paid fans either Jerry, which is good uh, yeah I mean the, the, like, uh, the Welsh fans were amazing right like uh, I missed the start of the game mm. but uh, that last that second half when they were getting back into it because apparently they were terrible in the first half yeah USA all over them um, and it should have been 2 or 3 nil. very much a hashtag game of two halves I would say uh, Wales definitely came back to, back into a big time and even towards the end you're kind of thinking like Wales got the penalty what 10 minutes left of normal time and I think you're thinking then Wales can push on and win this game but a draw was a fair result they both beat Iran you'd imagine and then uh, their respective games against England I think Wales-England is the last game in that group uh, the USA will play Iran in the final final round of fixtures so that's going to be fascinating and I'd imagine it'll be fairly tentatively poised heading into the last game in that one Um so yeah, loads of talking points out of yesterday. And like, I just don't know the, the impact of the heat on the players. The it's not that hot. No, it doesn't seem that hot at the minute. But even training during the afternoon and stuff, it depends on the kickoff times, doesn't it? No, I, I don't think it, it's like 25, 26 degrees. Right, right. All Is it day, humid, every day. Humidity or I don't. This seems uh, seem okay. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. So far, so good. And like, was there uh, one of the reasons given for people leaving the stadiums in the first day was because it got too cold that their feet were freezing because the air conditioning was, was up too high total opposite now look I don't know. You know it did seem strange that so many people left at only 2-0 yeah yeah. Like, I know it's bizarre like <clears> the <throat> thousands of empty seats but if you were freezing you can see oh, look I can't take this anymore yeah. I gotta go and um, beat the traffic a lot of traffic in some of them stadiums out in the desert as well like seem to be more yellow cards given uh, now it's a pity the captains of the teams yesterday didn't take the yellow card that everyone wanted them to take. Uh, seemed a bizarre decision. And look, FIFA are the real villains here. We we know that. But well, you know, FIFA are the real villains. But the they can't give. I'm not giving the no, captains no. a free pass either. Like they they bottled this. They it had was, a chance to show something. Yeah, and everybody said the same thing at this stage. Like they they bottled it. They made a big deal out of it, like, oh, we're going to do this thing, and then they they absolutely didn't do it because they failed and they're cowards. And you know, everybody's holding up the Iranian team as um, the opposite of what they should have done and that's all like that's all obviously true but they are just as big a villain yeah. in this now like as FIFA who have, FIFA have taken the money and then you're like complicit with the taking of the money by not doing the one yeah. thing that you could have done and there was lots of ways around it and somebody just one person just needed to be brave like Pat Navin made the point if they'd all worn an armband at the start of the game was he going to do 11 yellow cards <laughs> maybe he would have um, you know maybe they would have been but like even better all exactly yeah exactly like and he, yeah, and some people pointing out that you know going into the third game, if if Kane had taken the yellow card, of course he could have swapped out the captaincy, given it to someone else, and and just rotated the yellow cards. I guess made it a big issue by the by the time the third uh, round of fixtures came around. It just seemed utterly bizarre. They had a chance, and they bottled it. Yeah, and uh, you know that's what we will remember this World Cup for potentially well I saw someone posting yesterday a photo of, of Harry Kane's one love armband that he wore during a Nations League game a couple of years ago I think it, it could be in the football museum in Manchester maybe uh, and posting his tweet with it you know I fully support the one love movement well imagine how famous the armband would have been that he would have worn yesterday uh, like iconic yeah. one of those proper, proper moments yeah and yeah, yeah. He just and, and he had a chance to do it and he didn't do it and yeah. they all had a chance to do it and they all didn't do it so far and until somebody does it it's very, very disappointing. Uh, right, here's what's coming up between now and uh, 10 o'clock this morning. OTVM obviously brought to you with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. You can sign up or donate now at movember.com. Kevin Kilban, live from the desert at uh, 7.55. Jonathan Wilson, also in the desert at 10 past 8. We're bringing the sports pages at 8.35 this morning. Jenny Moore plays Gaelic football for Belgium. Uh, well, sorry, no, Brussels. It's Brussels. The, that's the GA club in Brussels. And they got knocked out of the junior championship at the weekend. So we'll get her story. And then Stephen Ferris is going to join us at 10 past nine to look back on the uh, 
November internationals and where we stand, particularly with respect to the back rows. Anybody put their hand up for getting in that back row, or is it absolutely cast in stone at this stage? Jack Conan seems first sub in, but we're, we're like Nick Timoney sitting in the stands alongside uh, Jonathan Sexton at the weekend. So we'll get to, uh, the views from Stephen Ferris and then uh, someone in the rugby goodness coming your way a little bit later on as well. So. Uh, I was disappointed Kane and Bale didn't make the stand spineless as I believed all along virtue signalling says Ian MacDonald uh, crowds are down in stadiums says uh, Cam 6511 um, well I mean that's not that's not what the facts say what the facts recorded are is that there was 41,721 people at the Senegal Netherlands game even though the stadium is supposed to only hold 40,000 so they're obviously counting like media and uh, camera people on the pitch and event staff who aren't actually part of the seated capacity. Maybe media would be. So they're but, um, counting everyone. People selling merchandise outside the stadium. They're counting the taxi men, the, the drop fans off, the bus drivers. Um, sounds like they're counting every single person. I did, I did see a headline in the piece that um, Qatar don't care because they've already won the World Cup. As in, the winning of the staging here is like a massive coup for them. In, in terms of local politics and that local politics is far more important to them than international reputation because ultimately they were never going to change their thoughts on homosexuality or women's rights or workers' rights, really. They're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah no problem. Oh, absolutely, yeah, you're right, yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, like, if, that's, if that is the case, then, uh, you know, um, it's very hard to see what the legacy of this World Cup is going to be other than a, well look we all knew that uh, money was the most important thing to FIFA and I mean we told you it was we showed it to you again and again and again and so lo and behold that's what it is and you better get used to this now because that's in your future uh, all every second World Cup like most of the legacies of World Cups that you see like you see the legacy of the, the World Cup in, in South Africa in 2010 and you think well, this is going to increase the interest in African football um, the legacy of this World Cup yeah probably is that it's a, like, it's a little geopolitical power trip for the Emir of Qatar and he's having his little moment in the Gulf and in the Gulf region he wants to be the, the all-powerful everyone look at us um, and, I, and I think yeah you're, you're right there like the closer that it has come and, and the, the Budweiser thing is probably leaning into this they are fully now going as, as, the, as the World Cup is upon us they're just they're just like you know what our views are our views our culture is our culture we're going to lean into it we don't care what you think yeah um, you know I think before the World Cup they were kind of reticent to, to stand against what other people believed and the, and the free will of the, the Western world but yeah they, they've, they've fully leaned into their backward ideologies I think as the, as the World Cup has come upon us kind of sad and you see Grant Wilde the US soccer journalist getting stopped at the, the gates to USA Wales last night and phone taken off him you know he's there for 25-30 minutes he's wearing an LGBT kind of pride t-shirt and he's told to take it off he refuses he eventually gets in uh, and there seems to be so much of that as well yeah, uh, so I, like, stuff like that that just I think everybody understands that um, like so he was allowed in and, and actually that tweet went viral and so people are like definitely now more aware of the issues in Qatar is it is it backfiring or do they care? I suppose that was the point. That the, the the political piece was the point was like they don't care about um, all that stuff. That we think oh it's really backfiring, but that's not what they're trying to do. No. They're trying to be the big dogs locally, and they were the ones who delivered the World Cup to the the region, and so therefore, I don't know. Is it like when you're a trillionaire and the other trillionaire doesn't get the World Cup and you get the World Cup first? You're like yes. 
<laughs> like that's all it, it is, you know. Yeah, it has that feel to it. I, I, like even Grant Wall's tweet, as you say, it goes viral. But like, what what's the impact going to be? If, uh, the impact doesn't need to be on this side of the world. We all know what's what's right and what's wrong. But oil prices went down yesterday on the back of a story in the Wall Street Journal about how OPEC was going to uh, make more oil. They were going to increase um, capacity, and then uh, Saudi Arabia issued a statement saying, "No, we're not," and. Uh, that got backed up by the United Arab Emirates and it was like oh yeah they just made trillions more dollars than yesterday afternoon having lost a little bit in the morning because somebody somewhere said a story and might have said something and it's like okay is that that's the bit that's actually really important mm. the football is just like a weird little kind of sideshow yeah it's just a distraction whereas for us actually the football is really important like the World Cup yeah. really 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 matters <laughs> like we forget about all the little discussions like you see the likes of the you know the, you see the Saudis and, and, and them in the, in the stands for the opening game the other day and you're like there's, I'd say there's some serious conversations happening you know behind the scenes here that we don't even know about that mean so much more than the football uh, you know fighter jets being bought or so yeah yeah, Supercan three five four says, lads, just look at who the, the FA let buy their clubs. They don't care about human rights, etc. Uh, it's a fair point, and it's more the Premier League. But yeah, uh, Ian McDonald says Wales and USA was like watching a good mid-table battle yesterday. Really enjoyed it. Was certainly the best atmosphere so far. It's been a bit dull apart from the Wales USA game. Uh, you wouldn't say the. I mean, again, I was uh, unfortunately realised getting in the way of the World Cup watching. Um, didn't get to see the, all of the uh, Senegal Holland game, but um, it looked. Grand, but not great. Yeah, like high standard, but like two, two very. We're not losing this game. Yeah, I think for both, a long period of time. Exactly, both of those teams know that they're on a similar enough level. Maybe the Dutch would, would be fancy to win it, of course, but they were very reluctant to not to not lose that game. The the story of the the Dutch keeper was a great one. I saw I noticed yesterday. Year. Andreas Noppert, Heron Veen, twenty eight years of age. So they, when they won the Dutch second tier uh, two years ago, he was their second choice keeper. He's made forty five league appearances in his career came from absolutely nowhere and now he's playing in the World Cup so little stories like that you hope to see and Matty Cash getting to play against uh, Messi today he said that was one of his dreams so uh, little, little stories that, that on the pitch at least give us some hope At 7.48 this morning let's go to Qatar and join Kevin Caban Kevin, good morning to you how the hell are you? I'm very good how's it going Jay? All good? Oh magic how are you? I'm good. I'm going a little tired. Still, probably a little bit jet lagged and things like that at the moment. We've we've not been getting off air till probably one a.m. local time here. So it was just tried to get in last night back across the um, the metro to to get back to the hotel, get a bit of a kip, and then we're we're up and running really now, aren't we? So we have the four games today. So it'll be great. So are you doing every game basically? Well, I'm not doing the Argentina game today, um, but the next three, I'm doing the next three. I'm in studio uh, there, so our, our studios are in the souk. And uh, yeah, so I'll be doing the next three games after that today. Um, Shane was asking about the heat, but it's uh, like it's not that hot, is it? It's like, it's fine. Uh, you know, obviously it's hot, but it's not um, oppressive so far. Or am I wrong about that? No, no, it's, it's just probably first. It's not, it's not scorching hot. The stadiums are actually cold. I've only we went to the stadium. Uh, I'll be at um, the stadium for the Canada game, which is uh, Wednesday. So we've we went to the stadium to do like sound testing and things like that the day that I arrived here, and it's actually it's actually freezing cold in the in the in the stadiums, and you feel it as soon as you walk in. Obviously, the the, the the aircon that's being pumped into the stadiums there, so you go from outside where it's warm, like not overly warm, it's you know, it's pleasant enough in, in into the evenings, and you walk into the stadiums and it's just freezing cold, and you feel that immediately as soon as you get in there. So that's because I saw somebody explain that's why everybody was leaving at uh, half 
half time in the first game and that makes sense like there was no other yeah. reason for people to leave like, the opening game of the World Cup other than something has gone wrong here and it's obviously it's freezing it, it really really cold honestly you, you know you'd be wearing a, you'd be wearing a coat uh, a jumper or whatever it will be when you get into the stadiums you'd need it because it is actually that cold once you, once you arrive in the stadiums um, I, can you talk to us a little bit about like what level of uh, crossover you're seeing you know I don't know if you've been wandering around the place but like are people there aware of the fact that the rest of the world is going what the hell is going on with this World Cup lads uh, yeah, I mean, more so, yeah, I've been wandering around. I've been getting the, the metros are saying to and from our studios, got a metro down to the stadium the other day. So, yeah, I've been getting around quite a bit in in the two or three days that, that I've been here. Uh, yeah, I got that feeling. You get that feeling from everyone that you're speaking to. It is a little bit of that. I think they're, they're obviously recognising the... Uh, the issues that that, that that we've been talking about prior to this tournament, they're, they're mentioning it to us slowly. There's, there's so many, even around where our studios are, Jay, there's, there must be, I don't know, say 500 people that's just that's just working there. And apparently, from speaking to one or two guys that's working around the studios, and they're like just literally cleaning up their... Uh, making sure that that, that, everything's, uh, that everything's fine and in shape... They're working long, 12, 15-hour days at, at some stage. They're not, they're not allowed to eat. There's no food for them. There's nothing that's been put on for them when, when they're actually working in these in these studios. Or not, not, it's around the studios, actually. It's more like security as you're walking into, into, the, um, into the studios themselves. Um, and when you're starting to chat to one or two of, of, of these guys around it and you're starting to, to, to get a feeling albeit only a few days and not necessarily been around and, and experienced it all just yet, which will come in the next few weeks, I think, when I, when, when I get fully established here. You're starting to get a feeling that um, they're trying to get a message out from within, I think, as well, that these messages are starting to, 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 to come out more and more, I think, as the tournaments come out for the conditions that they're actually finding themselves working in. Yeah, I think that's, like, you know... I people before the World Cup like oh no one should go but actually by going and continuously talking about this stuff you hope that at least everybody becomes aware of what life is like for people who aren't the ruling class and the ruling cast in Qatar can I let, let's talk a little bit about the, mm. the, the armband situation because um, we'll play you this clip first it's uh, it's Keen speaking on ITV yesterday when he was recommending that they should have done something have a listen mm. yeah. but I think the players could have done it for the first game and took the punishment, whatever that might be, Kane, obviously you're risking saying if he's going to get a yellow card, if that was going to be the punishment. But that would have been a great statement. Do it for the first game, if you get your yellow card, what a message that would have been from Kane or Bale. Take your medicine, and then the next game you move on. You don't wear it, because obviously, again, you don't want to be getting suspended. But I think it was a big mistake, I think, both players, particularly obviously we're talking about Wales and England here, should have stuck to their guns and done it. Whatever pressure from outside and from their own associations... Have the belief. If that's what you believe, then go with it. What do you think, Kev? Mm. I agree with that. I do agree. Um, especially, especially the English FA, and I, I was seeing interviews prior to the game with with officials from the FA saying, "Look, we, we'll take fines. This is what we're going to do." Adamant in the fact that we are actually going to, you know, we, we're obviously going to take the knee, and we will definitely wear the, the, the armband. Uh, I think Harry Kane definitely should have done it. I think for, for what the FA supposedly stand for, uh, and what the what they have mentioned that they, they stand for over the last what ten years, especially, and how they've they've brought the the, uh, the women's game alongside the men's game forward over over that period of time as well. 
I absolutely think that that should have been that should have been done. Harry Kane, yes, especially Harry Kane. I'd feel just take a yellow card for that one game. Yes, not necessarily an ongoing thing, but what a statement that would have been. And what can you imagine an iconic image going forward of the referee giving Harry Kane a yellow card just for wearing the armband? Can you imagine what that would have done? I think globally, um, and also the fact is. Regardless now, there is also a side aspect to this that there's more of an issue with FIFA saying what they've said and, and, and saying that they're not allowed to wear this armband because they've, they've highlighted the issue anyway. So I think the job was probably done prior to the game anyway because I think the armband, I mean, I don't know if, I don't know what you guys feel there as well, but it, it seemed to me that the armband, that you know, players wearing rainbow laces, players wearing the armband, I don't think many many people are asking the questions why guys were wearing uh, rainbow laces or wearing the armband whereas now people are asking the question as to why why i think i think even taking the knee in the premier league probably for the last two or three months um, was probably i think pressure needed to be put on the authorities needed to be put on maybe uh, fifa maybe maybe uefa for the you know the paltry fines that we've seen for for racist chanting that's gone on in stadiums across europe and maybe across the world over the time I think take, by taking the knee yesterday, especially, I think it highlighted that issue. That, that was my personal feeling on it. But the armband itself, I think that that yellow card could have been taken for that one game yesterday because I think that message would have been far greater than, than anything else. Do you think players, Kevin, are hiding behind, um, I guess, that the football associations and even hiding behind FIFA? Like FIFA, we know are, as we said earlier, villains in this, but, but the, the players, the captains of these associations could have quite easily stood up and, and had their moment and, and actually done something with a bit of meaning because, as you say, like the, sometimes the rainbow laces and the, the one love armbands lose meaning, but they had a lot of meaning yesterday and, and could have had so much more. I don't know. But I don't, do, you, do you think that, Shane, yourself? I don't, I don't know. I mean, that, that's just, that, it, it still comes down to the fact for a majority of players, and, and this is the truth, a majority of players don't read up on the issues that's affecting the world, that's affecting the, even their own game. They just want to go out and play football. They, mm. You know, the paycheck's coming in at the end of the week or the end of the month or whatever it's going to be. They're just getting on with football. And I think, I think to an extent... Even I was like that when I was playing. I, I you know, I, I, I would have would have had a broad view on on worldly issues and things like that. I, you know, I would have always, particularly as as I got older and older, I was reading, you know, knowing my history, knowing, you know, trying to be well read on various things. But a lot, so many players are not bothered. So many players don't even care. So, you know, I I wouldn't want to single out, you know, even Harry Kane to an extent, and or whichever captain. A, a lot of a lot of players don't actually care, and that's pretty much where it is. As sad as that sounds, that's pretty much what it is. I think it is up to to the associations to to almost back the players and the associations. This this maybe the F, the English FA or you know the Dutch FA that we're talking about it yesterday, Welsh FA. These are the organisations that should have been putting pressure on FIFA six months ago, a year ago, whatever it was. It, it, doesn't necessarily need to be happening 24 hours before the game or the last 12 hours before the, the, the due to take place in the game because I think Gareth Southgate I think actually did really well prior to the match in his in his pre-match interview just to say look at the end of the day I've got I've got a team to prepare I've got I've got to get everything ready to get the players' mindsets going into this first game against Iran so this has been spoken about it's been talked about at the end of the day it does have a, a cut-off point that has to come in at some stage to go look we've got a game we've got a World Cup to try to win regardless of what's going on around it and I know I'm probably with you lads now that look 
we know the issues that's affected this World Cup. You know, I, I, I watched the, the FIFA documentary just in the last few days. I'm, you know, I think we're all probably well, well scripted, well versed on exactly what has happened and how this has come about and what the Qataris have done and how they've, uh, you know, treated migrant workers, you know, the, the women's rights over here. We're all, we're all more than aware of that now. But a lot of players simply don't, do not care about that in the position that they're in. I know that they should and I get it. And it's sad me even saying that, but that's the reality of where we are. Yeah, and I think um, it's going to be interesting to see if anybody actually steps outside that and takes the risk and maybe, because it's still not too late for somebody to, you know, at the in the last 10 minutes of a game to uh, put, the, put the armband on and actually make that statement and get mm. the booking in the middle of the Do game. Jay, I think the biggest story yesterday was the, was the Iran players not singing the national anthem. I mean, that was the biggest story in my, in my view yesterday. Iran players not singing the national anthem. It was a demonstration for what's happening back at home for, for, for the Iranian players' families and supporters. The national anthem was being booed in the stadium. I think that was a bigger story yesterday than anything else because of, of what's happening there in Iran. Are you seeing anything, Kev? Like you, we, we talked this morning about Grant Wall, the US uh, soccer journalist, getting his uh, refusal of entry when he was wearing the, the, the Pride T-shirt. And you know, you're like, is it? Is it? What's it like for for journalists on the ground over there? Like, are you getting ferried from bus to bus? Are you you know, do you have a chance to kind of walk around? Is there a bit of freedom of movement, or what's the what's no, the general feel? Honestly, I was saying before, Shane, I'm, I'm getting the metro everywhere. There's um there is actually a bus that's put on for our guys. We've not got a, we've not got a, a hugely big crew here that, that's working over over here for, with with TSN for Canadian TV. But we're kind of doing our own thing. We're staying in the hotel. Brazil are actually in the hotel that I'm staying in. It's carnage outside. Really is honestly the the madness that's around the Brazil team, as you, as you can imagine. But they have a, a total section of our hotel that's closed off, and. I'm just kind of doing my own thing, getting walking down to the metro station, getting on the metro, heading to our studios. I'm, I'm getting out and about and I'm enjoying that. So I'm sure there's a lot of journalists that, that maybe are finding issues and things like that. I saw yesterday Wales fans actually that had rainbow coloured hats that were getting them taken off them before they got into the, into the stadium yesterday. So um, I haven't been to a stadium yet, a stadium game yet. So that that's going to come in a few days' time, and I'll probably get more of a feeling uh, when uh, when Canada play Belgium in a couple of days' time. What are, what uh, what are the Canadians feeling about this whole thing? What uh, can they cause a bit of trouble? Can they uh, go a bit deeper than maybe some people are thinking? I think I think the Belgians themselves are quite scared. I don't think they feel as though they're in great form coming into it. Um, if Belgium turn up, Jerry, if, if if their players turn up, they'll they'll they should beat Canada handily enough, but. Canada have got one or two players in their side that, that can cause problems. There's real pace in the team. Everybody knows Alfonso Davies, Jonathan David that plays at Lille. Um, st- um, they've got also got Tejan Buchanan. They should have these three in the side. I would imagine it'll be a front three of those. Probably line up with a 4-5-1 with uh, Buchanan. will probably play on the right-hand side and Davies on the left-hand side in support of Jonathan David. Uh, and there's pace, there's real pace, and I think they can hurt uh, Vertonghen and, Ald- and Alderweireld, especially with the maybe the age that they're at, the lack of pace that they've got within the side. Um, and it depends what John Herbman, the coach, actually, how he's going to approach this game, Joe. What's he going to do? Is he going to think, well, look, we'll go and press them high, we'll go and have a go at them and get picked off because that could happen quite easily? Or is he going to try and sit and contain and try and work the way into the game? I- I'm-, I'm going to be interested to see how he can do that uh, how- or how he's going to start that game, but I think from Canada, I, th- I think they feel that th- I think this game out of the, the, the first two games, Belgium and Croatia, they could be done after those two games quite easily if, if both those sides play as well as they're capable of playing. But 
personally, I think I think they can get something out of Belgium. Croatia's, I think, a way tougher game the way that Croatia are playing at the moment. Tough group, all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then Morocco, Morocco as well, who have got top class players themselves. You know, so it is. A, it's a tough group. You know, the 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 fourth best team officially in in um, in, in rankings and in and in probably stature as well. You'll have followed a lot of the the Team USA players as well, Kev. Like they looked really, really yeah. good for large swathes of that game with with Wales yesterday. They they could do some damage. You no, know, the I guess the England game next is going to be the one that will really show where they're at. I don't I don't rate them, Shane. Honestly, right. I don't. I said it before the game. I think there's a lot of energy about the US as we saw last night. But what they, they don't create a lot of chances. They don't. They've not got final third players I don't think and I know that Pulisic did okay last night I was really impressed with uh, with Musa actually I thought he was f- brilliant last night uh, f- for the US and he's only got a you know a handful of caps under his belt f- for him uh, he's from Valencia I thought he was outstanding really really good player last night but I, I just I-, I saw the tackle from Walker Zimmerman and and I was saying to our guys last night when, when they're in I said look they've Tim Ream and Zimmerman as a centre-half partnership. You know, if Harry Kane doesn't score against these guys or cause problems for with with other runners around him, you know, the, the, Harry Kane should easily be able to deal with Zimmerman. And you can see for the penalty, Zimmerman going through the back of Bale, mm. just such a, a, a rash decision for him to go to ground. And Wales weren't really doing much themselves. Wales were terrible in the first half. Uh, they picked it up second half. I thought Rob Page made a big error by not starting. You know, I, 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 and I was saying in the lead up to the game, it's the one thing I was looking forward to with Kiefer Moore going up against Zimmerman and Ream. Let's see how, how he does against these two. Someone's trying to come into my room actually now. I think, I don't know what's happening here, but, uh, <laughs> um, but, 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 um, they heard what you were saying, Kev. They're coming for you. I think so. I know. I think so. We, and we've been monitored here. I don't know what's happening. You know, they're trying to get me out of the room. Um, but, um, I honestly, I, I just in relation to the US, as you, uh, what I'm saying there with, with Zimmerman and, and, uh, and Ream, Kane is going to have a field day. Honestly, he is. Harry Kane was brilliant yesterday, just watching him, the way that he played. And so the US, no, I, I, honestly, I think that was a key game for the, for both Wales and the US. Whoever was going to win that game, I feel as though they were going to finish second behind uh, Wales. So, uh, sorry, behind, behind England. So, it's going to be. It'll come down to maybe goal difference probably going forward now because I think they're both going to lose to England. Then it'll be what they can do against Iran. I've only been to uh, one World Cup, but one of my favourite things about it was like randomly seeing and bumping into uh, football aristocracy. I remember seeing Arsene Wenger on a treadmill, which was very like, "What the hell is this?" Uh, have you bumped into anybody strange and random just yet, or is it too early in your adventures? Just walk, yeah, walking around. I met Dion Dublin the other night, but I kind of know Dion anyway, so uh, I was just walking randomly around. So it, it's it's hardly up there at the moment um, but no I haven't I, as I said I've not been to a game yet I've not been to a stadium to, to, for a match so that might change in a, in a couple of days time um, the, the networks that are, that are around us we've got Italian TV we've got uh, Mexican TV uh, Chinese uh, who else is by us as well um, I think it's Belgian TV as well actually so there might be one or two that will be coming in out of the studios where, where we're based at the moment yeah um, the, have you randomly accidentally walked into the Brazilian section and just kind of said oh look hey lads how are you huh. no you can't you can't get in it, it, I mean the security around the hotel is crazy it's madness so they, they have probably half the hotel like maybe 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 a quarter or half our hotel just totally locked down doors locked two or three security on each door there's a separate entrance for Brazil to come in and out of the hotel that's totally locked down because they've actually got uh, barriers up Maybe fifty, a hundred feet from the hotel, you can't even get up to the to the hotel door with 
probably 50, 100 police that's around the uh, the hotel, um, not not allowing you anywhere near it. So they have Brazil locked down totally. Yeah, they do. I saw Dan McDonald posting on Twitter the or Instagram, I think it was, maybe the 24-7 coffee shops and coffee restaurants kind of sitting open late at night. So that seems to be the, I think he called it the coppers of the coppers of Qatar. So not serving drink, but serving coffee late yeah. at night. That seems to be the... Kev's a changed man, though. He's not got no interest in the coppers of Qatar. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. The coffee's obviously yeah, we're good. looking for that. There's, there's not. Yeah, the, yeah. As he, as he said to you, we're in. I'm in kind of the centre where the souk is, where where we are. So I've, I've been out walking around there a little bit. Yeah, no, no, no beers or anything like that. So it's been, it's been a very different World Cup in that respect. You know, I was in Brazil and I went to Russia where the beers were able to flow. Uh, not not frequent enough, but one or two here and there. But no, it's been it's been it's been a dry um, a dry Qatar for me, a dry World Cup. Yeah. So there'll be no rapping. Is that what you're telling us? <laughs> oh, I can do rapping, but I'll, I'll rap without the without the drink. You know, it just won't be as good. I suppose. Yeah. Oh, maybe it'll be better. Who knows? The, yeah. Anything else uh, struck you so far? I mean, obviously, it is pretty early. Well, I mean, I think if we're talking football-wise, I think England were impressive, weren't they? England was so good yesterday. Uh, they did everything they had to do. I, I, I maybe felt with the issues that were around the Iran side, I think that maybe affected them. I, I said before, not singing the anthem as a as a as a sign of, um, uh, you know, or, or, or a protest essentially that the Iran, the Iran side. I, I just don't think they played as well as they're capable of playing as well. One or two players in that side, I thought, might have been able to to hurt England. Tarami was one of them who, of course, who of course scored the two goals for them. But I just think the occasion got the better of them and England did what they needed to do and England will take some stopping. They've got the best attacking players at the tournament and that was pretty much the standout thing for me. Is it Southgate now? Can Southgate get the best out of the players? I could not believe he didn't start Phil Foden, but maybe it was proved right with, with what happened. But, um, you know, I think, as I said, they're going to take some stopping. England should get nine points from this group. Seven would be an absolute minimum, I'd feel, from from the group, and then they'll probably see what happens when when they get to the knockout stages. Um, I watched, well, obviously, I did the, the Senegal um, Netherlands game, and that was that was probably the most competitive game we've seen, wasn't it? I don't know what you guys think of that one. It was the most. I thought Senegal were a bit unlucky actually to lose the two goals. I'm not a fan of Mendy, Edward Mendy. I don't rate him. Um, I know that you know he's, there's many that think that he's he's great, very good with his feet, but I just think the the two errors for the two for the two goals he's cost the team there. I just feel as though I've seen that from him coming out for the for the first goal for the cross, and then the second goal the parry he's just got to make that stick. So on the pitch that's what's maybe the standout features. And Netherlands I think could do well here. Getting Memphis back in the side was key for them because without him. And Janssen up front, I think Janssen's pretty poor, I think. So that's where they need uh, Memphis back in the team. Yeah, the Dutch are, sorry, we haven't really talked that much about them as a yeah. team who could go deep. But like they, they have all of the aspects that you want for an international tournament. Uh, very experienced manager who's really literally seen and done absolutely everything there is in the game. Uh, yeah. a, co- a core, a spine of very experienced players. Some players who were in decent form. You wouldn't be terribly surprised if they were to get hot. No, I, I think that as well. They've got no real superstar. They've not got the you know. If you look at uh, you know whatever France and Brazil, England, whatever, they've got real top class players. If you look at like Kane, Neymar, Mbappe, or whoever, Messi, of course, with Argentina, they haven't got that type of player, the game changer, I suppose, in the in the final third of the field. But but throughout the team, they've got so much experience in class. De Jong and Van Dijk. I said Memphis coming in is a big player for them because he's big for how they play. But watching them. It, prior to the tournament I watched them so much trying to like when I was researching and things like that it's 
I think they're brilliant without the ball. Something maybe to look out for and how they play. They, they, they're a little bit more, um, and not so much old school, but maybe going back 15, 20 years on how they press. They don't go four and five all pressing the ball quickly, pressing the goalkeeper, pressing centre halves. They leave centre halves on the ball. They try and set you a trap in the middle of the park and then they try to, to, to sweep on that trap when the, when the first ball's played into midfield and they break from that and that's where they, they usually try and counter. So they're really well organised um, at Holland. I think they're great to watch at times. Uh, yesterday, I actually didn't feel that way. I thought they were a little bit poor, lax in possession, De Jong giving a couple of balls away, but I think they'll get better. So no, it, I think they can beat anyone. I think that's the one thing that, that I would say about them. They can beat anyone with how organised they are. Kev, great to chat to you. It's his younger you're getting. It's <laughs> <laughs> a nice no, t-shirt as well, that. Kev. <clears throat> Oh, is, that, is, that, is that the fashion statement of the day? Is that what we're, we're, we're starting with fashion statements I like already, it. Shane? Old yeah? school pigskin leather football. Yeah, I like it. It's good. Good man. Good man. Thanks, guys. Talk Cheers. to you soon. Cheers. Stay safe. Take, take it easy. Take it's, it uh, easy. Kevin Caban in Qatar. Now, Brayburn Coffee is the official coffee partner of OTB. Whether you're travelling to work in the morning or training in the evening, Brayburn will give you the boost you need. It's available at Apple Green locations nationwide. Each week, we're giving one lucky viewer a hundred euro voucher to spend on some Brayburn coffee goodness at an Apple Green store near you. To enter, check out Add Off the Ball on Twitter, like and retweet our Brayburn competition post, and you're in the draw. After this very short break, we're staying in Qatar with football writer Jonathan Wilson. OTB AM. It's uh, nearly 12 minutes past 8 this morning here on OTBAM. It's Jer and Shane with you all the way through until 10. If you want to get in touch, you can leave a comment in the YouTube stream or you can tweet us at Off the Ball AM. Now, I'm delighted to say Jonathan Wilson is with us. Jonathan, good morning to you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Um, I'm very good. It's uh, It's been a wild start to the World Cup. Um, before we talk about the football, can I just get your impression of what kind of uh, impact the politics that's going on at the moment, the stuff with the armband, um, the migrant rights workers, the controversy, the just that whole kind of sense of it not being a particularly well-oiled machine at the moment. What's your sense of the impact that that's having um, globally on people's perceptions of this and, and locally on the ground there? Well, I, I, you know, it's, it clearly dominates everything. Uh, I mean, I think there's two slightly separate but related issues there. So I think it is very much a European concern, the workers' rights, gay rights, women's rights. Um, you know, I, I don't think uh, South American and African journalists seem particularly bothered by that. I saw the head of the uh, Japanese FA came out yesterday and said, oh, we shouldn't be talking about this. Um, but it, you, you sort of assume, I sort of assumed that there was a danger that when the football started, the talking about the politics would stop. And I, and I sort of, you know, you go into a tournament... Uh, as a journalist, you sort of think, well, what are the things I've got to keep my eye on? What, what can I not get distracted by? And I was sort of saying, you've got to always remember what the actual story is here. Well, there's been no problem doing that. Um, the, the, yeah, I think FIFA made the armband thing much bigger than it needed to be. I mean, it's, you know, it's a ludicrous um, prohibition they, they've put in place, given that it doesn't even fall under the remit of their ban on, on um, political symbols, in that the Qatar captain wore a pro-Palestine uh, Palestine armband on on Sunday, so how being pro Palestine is is not political, but showing support for um, the LGBT community in a very very sort of diluted way. How that somehow is in breach and a very overtly political statement isn't. Whatever you think of the merits of those causes, just makes no sense. Um, but I think that's something that we're we're finding uh, with everything here that that there is a there is an image and the reality 
doesn't really bear that out. And you've seen that in, in, in loads of different ways. So, I mean, it's a very minor thing, but the attendance figures for every game so far have been bigger than the capacity of the stadiums. So <laughs> somebody's queried that, and FIFA have now sent me a message going, oh, you know, you know what, we, we got the capacities wrong. Actually, all the stadiums are bigger than we said. Sorry about that. And it's nonsense. You know, I was, in a, I was at Senegal, Netherlands yesterday, a 40,000 capacity stadium. Uh, I would say maybe 75% of the seats were filled, and yet the attendance was given as 41,000. It was just nonsense. So if you can't trust the numbers for, for how many people are in the game, well, of course you can't trust the numbers for how many people have died building these stadiums. So, yeah, it, it's been a very odd experience. There's this whole question of uh, the fans you see in the stadiums, are they actually fans? Um, pretty sure the Dutch and the uh, Senegalese I saw yesterday were. I'm uh, pretty sure the Ecuadorians on Sunday were. But there's all kinds of stories that that group of Qatar fans behind the goal, the ones who actually stayed till the end and made themselves very conspicuous by doing so, that a load of them were shipped in from Lebanon. So there's this sort of sense of, of unreality. And and then there's a story, I mean, look, I, I have to say now that I have not confirmed this. I don't even know how to begin to confirm this. But there's a, there's a story yesterday that um, the sort of white security fences, that, you know, the, the very standard security fences you see whenever there's a crowd, yeah, be that in Europe, be it in Africa, be it in America, wherever, that apparently the Emir was driving past them last week and decided he didn't like how they looked. And so now a load of them are being replaced by, you know, that sort of, I don't know what it is, it's sort of infinity symbol, it's the, the mascot of it, of a logo of a tournament, the sort of white band, uh, that, that um, these white security uh, barriers are being replaced by sort of gold versions of that with gold ropes between them. So the stadium yesterday, Altumamo, where the... Netherlands Senegal uh, game was a load of those barriers outside the media centre had changed from the white ones to the gold ones, and it, you, know, you just sort of think, well, what, what, what an absurd way of running a tournament! What's an absurd way of running a country where the whim of one man can can change that at a you know handful of days' notice? Yeah, and it seems like uh, FIFA are happy to just do what they're told. The uh, it, uh, initially um, the beer thing, I was like, well, you know. It's it's not that unusual. That there's no beer in stadiums, really, because yeah, like I've been to loads of games where if you do buy a beer, it's non-alcoholic. Um, but it's just when you put that together with everything else that is changing at the last minute, you realise okay, what's actually happening here is that what Qatar said and what they're doing are different, but yeah. FIFA are doing whatever Qatar says. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. I mean, I think the beer is is to an extent it's a red herring. Like, I mean. I totally understand if you're, you know, from a Qatari family and you want to go to games in your World Cup and you suddenly got the prospect of people being drunk next to you, people holding beers next to you. I get that you, you know, that's not part of your culture. That makes you feel very uncomfortable. And I, I completely support the right of countries to say, we do not want alcohol. We will not have it in our tournament. That is entirely their right. But they had 12 years to sort that out. It shouldn't be done 48 hours before the tournament. And there's going to be, presumably, there's going to be a compensation that has to be paid to Budweiser as a, as a FIFA sponsor. Uh, I guess Qatar maybe pay that, and they just sort of think, well, what's another 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollars on top of the 250 billion or whatever it is they've already spent? But you're right. What, what, what's concerning about that is it's it's part of this pattern of, oh, yeah, it's, it's not in June, July. It's in November, December. Oh, we're not actually starting on the 21st of November. We're starting on the 20th of November. Um, and, and yeah, the, we're not having these white security barriers. We're having these goals. It, it's it, it just sort of feels like FIFA have have either lost control of the tournament or don't actually care that they're not in control of the tournament. 
And I think that's why Infantino is such a sort of, I, 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 you know, I don't know if he's if he's just weak. I don't know if he, you know, if, if something else is going on. But he he seems entirely happy to to let himself be governed by Qatar. And in that sense, I think it's a little bit. Dis- he was happily sitting between the Emir and, and Mohammed bin Salman, the, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, who, of course, are bidding or probably going to bid for the 2030 World Cup. Yeah. It's uh, only to be expected, I suspect, that um, we're, this is the start of something as opposed to the end of something, particularly when so much money is at stake. Can we talk about a little bit about the football? What did you make of um, the team selection yesterday from Gareth Southgate? And is that now a pattern or is this how he plays against teams he expects to have more of the ball? He plays with four at the back and the five at the back will come back in the round of the last 16 against a good team. Yeah, I think it's I think it's the last one. I've been slightly surprised by all the discussion around this. I think it's been pretty clear since before the Euros, that Southgate's model is England play a back four. Oh, we've lost you there. We've lost the sound on you there, Jonathan. We'll get you. We'll get you right back. We'll just um, we'll uh, just take that offline and see if we can re-establish the sounds. I'll try to get into Kev's room and I'm trying to cut Jonathan's mic. <laughs> um, yeah, it's mad. Like the, the more you hear Jonas over there talking about situation you're just like this is this is bizarre and and the capacity thing is, was one of the stranger ones <clears throat> the fact that FIFA can now turn around and say oh no that's that's actually not the capacity of the stadium very very strange um, so yeah there, there just seems to be more and more stories out each day that you're just like this is this is fairly fairly crazy stuff um, but yeah mad mad to hear the stories on the ground <clears throat> what did you think of um, Phil Foden that's certain uh, like I before the game you're like this is mad he's one of their, their best players if not their, their best player um, and yet when you see Saka and if it was Saka that started instead of him then you're you're like well Saka completely uh, you know vindified his, his position he, he was brilliant yesterday and uh, the, maybe Foden is being used off the bench maybe that's a, a purposeful ploy but um, yeah he's uh, he, he's certainly uh, not a bad player to have to come on uh, off the bench for England because um, there was some suggestion that this was going to be his tournament where he, he becomes the, the Gaza style figure uh, a la Italia 90 um, I mean he's just maybe there was something happened in training. Sorry, Jonathan, we're just having a, uh, an interlude here, a discussion around Phil Foden and him not starting. Um, you know, tournaments don't always start with the team that finishes them, but it was interesting that he didn't get the nod for the game. Yes, in, in some ways. I mean, I think when you play Kane, you want at least one and preferably two players who will run beyond him, which you get with Sterling and Saka. Um, so I, you know, I get the logic of that. Then I guess it becomes a question of do you play Foden, do you play Mount? And Foden, look, I think Foden is an absolutely brilliant footballer, but he hasn't played particularly well for England for, well, ever, really. Um, and I think that might just be an issue of, of you know, Manchester City is such an idiosyncratic team that, that the shift from that to a totally different system in international football, maybe that is, diff- is, is, is difficult for him. And, you know, Mason Mount, every coach who's ever worked with him says he's tactically, he's an absolute genius, that he... He understands the, the shape of the game on the pitch. And I think certainly the last sort of month, six weeks, he's been in pretty good form. So I, I, it didn't, I wasn't particularly surprised by that, that it was Mount over Foden. And I, I think it's difficult to play the two of them in, in the same England team if you've got Kane there. I know um, Borussia Dortmund had, had refused to approve any price tag for Jude Bellingham, Jonathan, before the World Cup. And you're hearing the rumours of Liverpool and Real Madrid coming in next year. You can kind of see why they've done that now, because this could be, this could be the breakout tournament for Bellingham. Yeah, I mean, we knew he was he was good, but obviously, if you have a good World Cup, then then that increases price tag massively. I mean, to to play as well as that with that level of maturity, 
at, at 19, <coughs> so excuse me, <coughs> at 19 is, is extraordinary. And, and, you know, that, that, that already I think is one of the, the great English World Cup debuts. I hadn't quite realised that he can literally do every, everything. You know, mm. he, he he could play in any position um, in the midfield area, and you'd be very confident of having a major impact on the game. It's um, it's kind of a unique skill set at the stage. Yeah, it is, and it's hugely useful to England because, I mean, as we were saying when I, when, when we lost the connection before, uh, I think England will go back to a back three against teams where they they expect the possession to be more contested. Um, and the question then was, well, you want Declan Rice in there. Who plays alongside him? Calvin Phillips did very, very well at the Euros. His range of passing is, is very good. He gets the ball forward quickly, which I think England at times lack if they play Jordan Henderson there. Uh, but obviously his fitness is, is a big question, just, you know, just coming back from injury. Whereas Bellingham can can drop back and do that and also give you a little bit more thrust. You know, he, he's, he's developed that, that sort of Frank Lampard ability to, to arrive late in the box He's clearly a very gifted header of the ball, which I have to say I hadn't particularly realised before. So you know, he, he yeah, he gives you everything, and if it does become two central midfielders, as as I think it will, uh, then then that's a huge positive to have a player with with that that range of, of attributes. Was it essentially the dream result, Jonathan, for for Southgate? Because in the end, really really good performance, but also conceding the two goals kind of. Tempers expectations a little bit gives them something to to improve on and, and focus on in a negative sense in the, in the you know in the pre match press conference ahead of the next game. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, the important thing was a to win, and b I think because there was that sort of sense of negativity, that sense of this thing had stagnated, to win in a way that, that excites people. You know, nobody can say now, oh, you know, Southgate's got to unleash them. Yeah, they they've shown in this sort of slightly unleashed, sorry, slightly leashed way. They they are perfectly capable of scoring goals. That they do have that incisiveness. So, would I mean probably ideally you'd have liked Kane to score, but it doesn't really matter. Um, so, yeah, I mean I, I think almost as well. You know the fact that they concede the penalty, which is I think it is a penalty, but it, it, it's a little bit harsh. And certainly you compare that to the penalty England didn't get early on when Maguire was wrestled to the ground. You sort of think, well, if you're going to have two of those decisions go against you, you might as well do it in the game you're winning six one anyway. Uh, so get a bit of bad luck out of the way. Um, I, yeah, I I can't really see how it could have gone much better. And as you say, with that slight negative that uh, we've got to be a bit careful here. We did concede two. We can't be going about conceding that kind of chance to, well, maybe Wales and USA, but certainly later on in the competition, seeing them go through. I know, you know, we were, again, before the, the line went down, we were talking about how that's been the pattern since before the Euros, the, the three-man central defence comes in against the, the better teams. Is there any possibility that actually the team is maturing to a point where they don't need that? Um, I mean, possibly. I, I, I just I, I sort of go back to something Southgate said at the beginning of September before those two Nations League games where he suggested that he'd allowed himself to be deflected in the summer, in those four games in June, uh, to go away from his principles. And he was so adamant, you know, that was a wake-up call for him, that he's got to stick to what he believes in. And I, I think he believes this is the pattern. You know, Southgate's not a spontaneous man. He's somebody who believes in research. He believes in thorough preparation. Um, I mean, if England beat USA and Wales by four or five in both games, which I'm sure will not happen... Maybe he does rethink that, but I'm pretty sure that, that it'll be the back three when they come up against the Netherlands or France or, or whoever happens to be the first the first team who are really going to challenge them in midfield. Um, and, and look, I understand all the, the history on that side. 
I wonder, does Bellingham being so good give him the opportunity to not do that? Well, possibly. I mean, it might become a case of he wants to get Bellingham in there because I think this happens at World Cups. You get players who who suddenly hit a hot streak and yeah, it happened to an extent for England with, uh, with um, Trevor Sinclair in 2002, a player of, you know, of a good player, but no, by no means a great player, but he had a great World Cup. That for, for that month period, players suddenly hit a hot streak and it looks like Bellingham maybe is hitting one. So you've got to sort of, I never think you should build a team around a player. Um, I mean, maybe if you're a smaller nation who only has one great player, you know, like beer in the days of George Wade, and obviously you do. But if you're in England, then, then, then you shouldn't do that. But if you've got a player on a hot streak like that, you want to do everything you can to facilitate that. And maybe it becomes a question of, we want to get him in, uh, but we don't want to give him too much defensive responsibility when he's he's looking so sharp and so good at getting forward into the box. Do you then play him in midfield with um, uh, with Calvin Phillips as, as well as Rice and, and keep the back four? But I still think Southgate will go back to what he planned several weeks ago because that, that's who Southgate is and that's what, the way his mind works. Sorry, I know, Jonathan, we touched on the, the off-pitch matters there <clears throat> uh, at the start, but just specifically on the one love armband um, issue, and, and like, do you, do you think Harry Kane was weak yesterday in not, in not stepping up? And we, we were kind of sitting and waiting and seeing, even though the, the associations uh, announced pre-game that they weren't going to allow captains to wear the armband, you know, you, you kind of waited to see if there was going to going to be a rogue captain, and, and Kane could have been one of those. Like, it seemed like a, a real moment where there was an opportunity to do something fairly big yesterday. Yeah, I mean, he could have done, but I think it's slightly unfair to to expect him to to do that. I mean, you know, it, it's he's not got, just got a responsibility to himself; he's got a responsibility to to England, to his teammates, to the squad. To, uh, to the nation, for, you know, for one of a, a slightly less ridiculous term, what if he did get a, you know, a, a second booking either in the game and suddenly England lose to Iran, or he gets a second booking in the last sixteen, he misses the quarter final, and and then suddenly England's chances of getting through are significantly diminished for what is, to be honest, a fairly diluted, futile gesture. I, th- you know, Harry Kane is not the villain here. Uh, I think the FA maybe could have been stronger. What I would like to have seen, and you know, I accept this was never ever going to happen, but those seven European federations could have said, "All right, you know, book him, and as soon as you book him, we walk out, and we don't play this tournament, and we'll take whatever financial punishment you throw at us." And if seven of them do it, if the Dutch pull out, the Germans pull out, and England pull out, then then, then that's a, a, a you know, major problem for FIFA. Um, but that needed solidarity and unity between those seven, and, and, and clearly that that didn't happen. Um, maybe Gareth Southgate could have won the armband. I think that's that would have been a way around it. It doesn't really matter if your manager gets booked. Um, but I, you know, I just sort of feel with this tournament that it's so easy to get distracted and think, oh well, Harry Kane could have done this, or the FA could have done this. No, FIFA have done this. It's FIFA are the villains here. If you want to look at villains, it's FIFA, it's Qatar. And if you want to even pick somebody, uh, you know, an, an English player who's at fault, it's David Beckham sitting there having taken his $150 million for, to promote a terrible regime. Yeah, I, I do wonder if it's, if it's finished, if, um, if somebody somewhere might make, uh, make a stand. I, I hope that what the Iranian team did yesterday inspires somebody else to score a goal at the end of the game, whip out the armband, put it on, take the booking and be like, yeah, so what, what are you going to do to me? So anybody, so just to... 
make a stand at this point. But as as you as like here's the thing. Yeah, but I mean, sorry, I, I think that I think those two gestures are slightly different. That Iran's is directed back in their own country, and it, I, I think there's a genuine possibility that could inspire. Or, or you know, provide some kind of solace or consolidation or, or you know, consolation to 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 protesters there. I, d- I just don't know what you achieve by wearing if you're Harry Kane by wearing an armband. What does it do? It, it slightly annoys the Qataris. So what? It, it's not going to change anything. Whereas the Iranian gesture, I think, actually genuinely can have an impact on the ground. I think I, I would broadly agree. The one thing I would say is though that if um, if you are from the community who. Uh, is LGBTQ+, then having somebody stand up for you in the face of the might of the Qataris and the acquiescence of FIFA might actually mean something, I, you know. Sure, I just think there's better ways of doing that than an armband. But there probably are. I mean, they're, they're in, in, they're, that's the, I think what the weird part about all this is that they somehow managed to turn this armband, which is like the most weak, watered-down form of, of um, alliance that we've really ever seen, you know? Like, it's kind of like the Lance Armstrong, Livestrong thing, like, except the modern-day version of it. Like, it ultimately doesn't matter. It doesn't achieve anything. But then FIFA turned it into something. Yeah. Which is... I, no, guess, I mean, you know, I, I hadn't even noticed the guitar captain was wearing a, a pro-Palestine armband until this armband thing came up. And then it was pointed out to me, and it's, well, you know, the, the, the double standards. And the fact, I just didn't even notice. And I, I suspect... Yeah, people in in the seven nations would have noticed, um, and and I think a lot of Qataris would probably not really have known what was going on. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, as you said, the, your um, preoccupation at the start was to like, how do, how do I make sure that the the main story remains the main story and, and in focus? It looks like it's not going to go away. It looks like actually what has happened here is. Um, a little bit of the, the Streisand effect, where people are going to be talking about it. You know, I see. Um, there are reports of uh, rich, educated uh, Qataris now kind of turning on the whole notion of why, why do we spend all this money to be, become an international laughing stock? So maybe it has some long-term impact in uh, the geopolitical understanding of Qatar and uh, the, the general region. I, d- I don't know what, the, what you think the outcome of all this is going to be. Yeah, I, I mean, it's something that's fascinated me for a while that, that you know, when... When, when this sort of began in, in a football context, and look, you, you can pick prime examples, but it's sort of really th- this phase of, of, of sports washing uh, sort of begins uh, with the, the Abu Dhabi takeover of City and then the Qatari takeover of PSG. And I think back then we were sort of a little bit, and I say we as a, as a sort of media and as a, as a sort of football culture, we're a little bit naive about it. We didn't really understand what was going on. That, that you know, City went from Taxa Chinuatra, who well, he is sort of slightly odd. Uh, Thai politician slash uh, millionaire. I think I don't think he was a billionaire. Um, don't really understand that. And then some other people have come in, and the, the full impact of it, I don't think we we fully had absorbed. But then, of course, after a decade of that, when when the Saudis buy Newcastle, suddenly we know the questions to ask. We know we know the places to look. Uh, we know what it's about. And I, I wonder if, uh, as our response to sports washing becomes more mature and more nuanced and, and begins to evolve, that maybe it, it does have diminishing returns. Um, and I, get, I, the, the, I mean, the problem with saying this is I don't fully know. I don't. I, I don't feel entirely comfortable. I've grasped what Qatar wants out of this. I, I get it's about um, publicising their nation so that they, they don't become sort of some minnow that the Saudis can just sort of gobble up. Uh, or, or some other regional power, um, 
But in terms of the reputation of their own country, like, you know, I, 12 years ago, I didn't give a second thought to migrant workers' rights in Qatar or, or LGBT rights in Qatar. Whereas now, I feel like I'm thinking about and writing about it every day. Um, and so from a state where I had a pretty neutral view, I've now got a pretty negative view. Um, and I, I, I don't, does that matter? I don't know. Maybe, maybe sort of unveiling yourself into the international community more, you know, as the Qataris have done. Maybe that's what matters. And you, know, you kind of this goes way beyond football. It was a huge uh, airbase in Qatar, where where the the US regional um, air force is based, where where Britain has planes. Um, so football is part of a much bigger picture of, of Qatar using the, the the money from the gas to sort of cement their position on the world stage. So they're, they're not there just to be taken over by by regional power, as has happened to them throughout their history. So I, I, I sort of I still feel uncomfortable about saying I'm definitive about exactly what this is all about. Yeah. But I think what we can say is at the moment, this in the certainly in the short term, this is pretty bad for the reputation of Qatar. Not least because the whole tournament just feels so weird. And a lot of stuff, to be honest, doesn't really work. Like the Wi Fi doesn't really and this is a journalist complaint, nobody cares about this. But the Wi Fi doesn't work. The media shuttles don't really work. There was no sort of comprehension of you know how to run a football tournament. It's staggeringly difficult here to watch football. Yeah, you'd think that, you know, I've been to Cups of Nations where clearly it's about promoting the nation. You go to Equatorial Guinea or Gabon during Cups of Nations they're hosting. It's on telly all the time, you know, 24-7. There's reruns of games, there's the live games, there's build-ups of games. Here, we're getting kicked out of media centres, you know, an hour and a half, two hours after the final whistle, so you can't watch the next game. Uh, being sports is not being shown. You know, they've got the local rights. It's not being shown in lots of the apartment blocks and lots of the hotels. So actually watching the tournament, this tournament is spent $250 billion on, is incredibly difficult. And you start to say, well, you know, that's, where's the joined up thinking there? Who, who are they actually trying to show this to? I did see somebody make the point that actually the sports washing element of it is far less important to them than that uh, local geopolitics, the point you made about Saudi Arabia gobbling them up, and that ultimately they don't really care if we think that they're um, slightly dodgy when it comes to women's rights and gay rights and or workers' rights. They don't care about that. What they do care about is how they're perceived by the United Arab Emirates and how mm. they're perceived. No, I do wonder on this what the longer-term impact for FIFA will be. Um because you saw Infantino with, with Mohammed bin Salman um, on Sunday. And I think he's playing a very dangerous game here. That, that I, I sort of am assuming that Infantino's motives here are partly weakness and he's just being manipulated by stronger forces. Partly he just wants to secure his presidency and you know he's been re-elected again unopposed. But he's got the African bloc vote by putting Patrice Motsepe in charge of CAF. Uh, he's he's pretty much got the Asian bloc tied up, and that's enough to to win him the election. But the power still resides with Europe and South America. They're still the big football nations. They're still the big football markets. And if, as has been planned, the Commonwealth nations join UEFA in the Nations League in 2024, if you do have that alliance there, then that suddenly is a very powerful bloc, to which I'm assuming the US and Mexico who have the big TV markets outside those two regions I'm assuming they could very easily be attracted. And they can go away to actually, what do we gain from from Asian football, from, from African football? We'll have our own World Cup and we'll run it on our lines with you know, gay rights respected, women's rights respected and, and not exploiting migrant workers. And I think there is a... You, know, you saw that when he backed down on the, the idea of having the World Cup every two years. 
that actually, if UEFA and Commonwealth speak with one voice, they still have a power, even if they don't quite have the votes in FIFA Congress. And I think it's a really dangerous game in Fantino's playing, and particularly that goading of Europe on, on Saturday. Uh, you know, the ludicrous thing about, yeah, Europe has to apologise for 3,000 years, for 3,000 years of crimes. Well, yeah, of course Europe should acknowledge its, its faults in the past. But the idea that you can't point out that it's not acceptable for migrant workers to be working 16 hours a day in 40-degree heat because Alexander the Great invaded Persia is just, you know, just nonsense. Jonathan, great stuff as ever. We'll leave it there. Thanks a million. Cheers, thank you. That's uh, Jonathan Wilson with some interesting thoughts from uh, Qatar this morning. If you've got views, 0879180180 is the WhatsApp number. You can leave a comment on the YouTube stream, youtube.com forward slash off the ball. Hit subscribe on that. And uh, when we're live, we'll let you know about it as well. It's 8.40. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. You can sign up or donate now. <coughs> Pardon me, at movember.com. Here's Pat Nevin talking about uh, Southgate. We're back with John Duggan next. I think you know what you say about those goals was correct. They were great goals. They remind me of the goals that now somehow go viral from like training sessions. Uh, Iran are terrible. Mm. Iran are really, really terrible. Um, and uh, um, you know, like maybe now we can understand what we couldn't understand before about how Qatar actually won the. Uh, Asia Cup, like, because... Uh, it's been a bad 24 hours for the Asian Cup. It has, yeah, yeah. Um, um, but Iran, Iran, like, so England, I think, by that stage, when they were they were able just to, to, to pass it around, they could try anything pretty much sh- sure in the knowledge that there were going to be no consequences to what they did. Yeah. And uh, I think that's the only thing. Now, England's, England's routes to... Um, to to success or to overachieving in, in tournaments recently has always included you know has for the most part included being against weaker teams and there are no outstanding teams so it's uh, it's encouraging for them there's no doubt that it's encouraging and again it has to be said that they are you know the players who are scoring today it is exciting for them they are an exciting bunch of players like I think Southgate is the problem but you know Bellingham uh, you know, see Rashford scoring, Saka scoring. Um, it is Grealish coming on and score. You know, it's it's they are an exciting bunch, and a, and a, again, uh, a group of players that I think people warmed. That was Dion Fanning uh, speaking with Joe last night. Um, right. Uh, it is time for sports pages. No, we're not going to do that. Yeah, John Duggan's here. John, good morning to you. Jaron Shane, how's the form? What's the crack? Ah, there's a million thoughts about the World Cup. Where do you want to? What do you want to throw at me first? Hmm. Um, do you want to talk about the, the, what you were watching on TV last night? Ah, uh, that Saipan documentary. Uh, I felt like I was stuck in a time warp. I just, I've had enough of all this stuff now. I've had enough of Italian 90 documentaries. I've had enough of Saipan stuff. Imagining that we'd won the World Cup. Bertie and... Yeah, Jason McAteer and everybody. Yeah, like, uh, it just feels that we're frozen in time. The second day of the World Cup, it's the main channel. It's the biggest primetime slot. And we're doing this... 20 years of Mick and Roy stuff. It's been great to do it over the last few years, but it's now at the stage where... Time to move on. Can we not just talk about maybe the new FAI getting support from the state 
to build infrastructure, to build academies, to have young boys and girls playing football and actually developing a soccer team here rather than this yeah. kind of stuff. This nostalgia tour, this time warp stuff. John, yeah. 25 years anniversary in 2027, we're building up to it. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait. Yeah. It's going to be uh, big. Uh, It'll be modern uh, 1930, and was it? Uh, you all you're all, this, <laughs> you all know what uh, today is. Today's the 22nd of November. JFK. JFK. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it'll be 60 years next year, won't it? will be 60 years next year, right. yeah. One of my ambitions is to... Uh, from a, and obviously in a somber way to get to Dealey Plaza mm. and just have a walk around uh, he didn't act alone by the way <laughs> breaking <laughs> news this morning he was just a patsy uh, yes I think so um, <laughs> uh, Owen Sheen was in Dealey Plaza five six months ago was he? yeah All right I'm um, enjoying his uh, Instagram stories. Not 60 years ago, it's important to. I think he was in Guatemala out. yesterday. He was leaving Guatemala or something. I was checking out his Instagram stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah. I so, d- no more Saipan for you? No, I'm not, no, no more. I think you're right. I think um, I, one of the things I was, I was talking with um, Kieran Cuddy about this on f- a couple of Fridays ago, maybe it was when the, the week of the draw, the week of the announcement about the stadiums. Like, I'm, I'm all in favour of us hosting stuff that works with the infrastructure we already have or that is going to give us new infrastructure that will have an actual legacy as opposed to any of the stadiums um, in Qatar for example or you know loads of the stadiums in, uh, that we've ever seen for World Cups or Olympics that never get used but actually the time and money it's going to take and the opportunity cost that it's going to take for us to host that so long as it doesn't mean that there's none of the League of Ireland grounds or the academies that don't get done or that the lobbying power that they have with the government isn't wasted to try and get support for this thing as opposed to actually, well, you know, if we had a thousand more coaches, we'd actually, in 15 years, win some underage tournaments and then after that we would have 10 players in the Premier League and therefore we'd be able to qualify for major tournaments all the time. Like, definitely... I'm much more in favour of like a long term thought process going into as opposed to what we've had in, in Irish football in particular was like uh, here's a little bit of candy floss I'm going to eat this and I'm going to get high on the sugar and yeah. then what happens after I get high I crash yes and look at England and look at obviously they've had the Premier League large yes to support their uh, national game over there but when you look at yesterday they had five probably world class players on the team and another world class player on the bench in Phil Foden and scarily good, and they can win this World Cup now. And John, don't say that. They can win this World Cup. If you were Gar- all about, you were all, you were all up for. I them. said they're a likable team, and, and then I pointed out you have to go home to Monaghan. You're like, no, change my mind. Gareth Southgate, uh, supporting them. He's looking in the corner at that straight jacket that he wants to get into, and he's out of it at the moment, and he's looking at it. Oh, if I get back into it, um, and hopefully for his sake, he continues to play with that structure and play the four. And the best form of defence is attack, I think, for England. And they don't want to regret this. They have a really big chance now because they're in the quarterfinals. They're going to beat the second team out of that Group A. They're in the quarterfinals and then who knows what can happen from then, especially if Denmark and uh, France reverse positions in their group. Who are you supporting, John? Who do you want, who do you want to win? As, like, as an Irish nation, this is a big question we have to do. Well, I asked people on Twitter last night about, I know, Jared's favourite nation. Now, maybe this is a rugby thing, Jared, with the Wales. Uh, what, how do people f- feel about them? And it was a very much a 50-50. Never versus, oh, they hate us in rugby and that kind of thing versus uh, yeah why not they're a Celtic nation let's get behind them the anthem was emotional um, I want Brazil to win mm. because I've been to Brazil twice and I saw in 2014 how obsessive that country is about um, the beautiful game and Neymar has to win for that to happen would you be happy to watch Neymar celebrating with the World Cup I'm telling you this 
having seen him in the flesh and being privileged enough to see him in the flesh, this guy is so badly maligned. And I know he can be a bit of a diva, but the quality of this man's football is close. The the quality, I was taking my breath away, to be honest. Um, And Lionel Messi is not as golden. I was reading The Athletic this morning about his Mm. links as a tourism ambassador for Saudi Arabia. And I really hope Jonathan Wilson's right, lads. I really hope that the the UEFA and the South American associations grow a pair around FIFA and around uh, Gianni Infantino and cozying up to MBS because at the moment it looks like with one country, one vote that Saudi Arabia are going to win this 2030 World Cup bid which is pretty depressing. I mean it will be farcical and like th- there is the point as well that it's the it's the 100th anniversary World Cup of Uruguay, like, yeah. It should be. In- but even Spain, Portugal, Spain was the best ever World Cup probably in 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, so either country, like you know it's really bad that England have not got a World Cup in 56 years. As the home of the game, you know. Um, no, obviously there's security issues. There are some flare up the hole, not good for a campaign <laughs> yeah. manifesto. Yeah, so um, <laughs> fans breaking in uh, to the final, not yeah. not, not the great. Yeah. Um, it's just funny you're talking about hosting there. I was thinking about, I was going through like I, I don't know because watching the Australia game and thinking about how we've gone to the stage now where we're, we can expect to beat Australia routinely in rugby and wouldn't it be not a great thing that well, can we not do a deal we're having us we're having what France hosting the next rugby world cup then Australia in 2027 then the USA in 2031 could you not do a situation where you have England and Wales and Scotland hosting matches and we just host the semi-final and final you could, you could, like, they, and like that, reverse nineteen ninety nine, effectively. Well, like the 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 difficulty was that we we couldn't convince the Scots to vote for us. Yeah, I mean, if we can't convince the Scots, then we're not going to convince. Yeah, you know, obviously Scotland, Scotland or Scotland. Yeah, fair fair play, lads, and hopefully we knock you out of the World Cup in France. It should have been ours as like a, you know, hopefully we we annihilate them in that game. I'm not sure we will. I think uh, unfortunately they're getting good again, but. We should definitely be building that narrative of like you cost us this World Cup. We'd have the we'd have the number one team in the world, and flaky France would be coming to Ireland to play us if it hadn't if we'd only managed to do that part of the, the gig properly. I, f- I feel like the legacy of the Euro 2020 bit like we almost need to be in the tournament ourselves in order for it to be a proper atmosphere over here. Like we're going to get decent games. You'd imagine the last sixteen game. A few oh, I think games. I think we'll have enough games to guarantee, won't we? Isn't there? Uh, well, no, Mooney wasn't having that. Was no, he? Mooney was like well, maybe the, it comes down to the rankings uh, as to which of those we'll five hosts. Once Gareth Bale's gone, come back to us there. <laughs> good point. Hopefully, yeah. yeah. Hopefully, we get a place. Uh, so what have I seen so far? Ecuador were good. Uh, I think they could pip Senegal. Um, the Dutch were lucky enough yesterday to be honest they don't have the attacking cutting edge um, England were very good and Wales USA is most entertaining game so far the whole um, the squad I have about the migrant workers and all that I think the Iranian thing was amazing uh, but it's been fine so far um, and today like you are, are already thinking to myself when you talk about the kind of the split in football it's important to have a democratic world with football and all these nations in but it's something that wrong isn't there that Tunisia and Costa Rica and Australia and Qatar and Iran are in this World Cup and Italy aren't. You know, it's maybe, I don't know, could it be a bit more merit- of a meritocracy? Because you have a lot of, like, you have three games today, which we already know the result of. Yeah, I guess, like, it is supposed to be a World Cup. Yeah. And so <laughs> those parts of the world that um, football is not as good, like, they need to have representation, uh, ultimately, if the money was invested in those countries and um, was traceable. You might be able to see some progress, but Mexico Poland will be the big one today, lads. Four o'clock. Um, only met in 1978 when Poland won. When Poland were a very good team back in the 70s and 80s. But Robert Lewandowski and um, Matty Cash. 
Matty Cash. Matty Cash, yeah. Yeah, playing against Messi. You're not having the Dutch, Sean. Like, I'm, it'd be intriguing to see if they top that group. They play the runners up in England, Wales, USA. I, I'm, I'm not having the Dutch based on the fact that, like, like when you think about it, Stephen Bergvan and Memphis Depay didn't make it in the Premier League. He's been brilliant yeah. international level, though. Memphis. Yeah, yeah, and it might be another Diego Forlan situation. Look, I think they're very good. Like, Delic didn't play very well yesterday, but I think they're very good. The rest of the team, and they've got a great manager, and I really hope that they, they get on a run, but. You just look at England's attacking prowess. I just can't wait to see what Argentina and uh, Brazil do and France do. We'll, get, we'll, we'll only really get see the clouds clear um, after the first uh, group games. You know. I, I think even then, like teams won't be good until the round of last 16, and that's the bit where the games are really going to start to matter. Sorry, the final, final group games, there might be some teams who have a bit of jeopardy and have to pull it out, but not many. Uh, Spain and Germany will be interesting. Portugal, Uruguay. There's lots of things to, to discover. But um, I, if you were an England fan, and I was reading Henry Winter in the Times, and it's quite gushing. It's quite. It's it's really patriotic stuff. Um, they'd be, they they should feel in a better place than they would have felt maybe a few days ago. Oh yeah, I'd say so. Uh, very quickly, the um, the newspaper headlines: Kenny must go unless results improve. That's Stephen Hunt speaking at an event last night. Um, Packy Bonner, though, has said that the board are fully behind Stephen Kenny. I want to see him qualify and get results like all the board members. We'll give him 100% while he's in the job. Mm. Yeah, I was... see the back of the mail they had that they wanted him to get a coach. FAI ultimatum. Kenny will be told to find a senior coach. FAI chiefs will demand Stephen Kenny adds a senior coaching figure to the Republic of Ireland staff before the start of the Euro 2024 campaign. Is he not looking for one anyway? Is that like Has he not always had one and now he's looking for one because the last guy because he keeps hiring good ones who keep getting jobs <laughs> three of them have gone Duff um, Barry and Eustace yeah and then sometimes he comes out well we don't really need we're already doing it but are you is it yeah yeah like Roy Barrett's very much back on the board level in the FAI I guess that the, the story here is that they want him to get this coach in as soon as possible and before this window with France at home sounds like it's going to be a Latvia friendly in the days before the story France. is can we, are we going to be able to um, be in a position where we get a playoff because we're not going to get out of that group yeah. So are we going to be well, in a position where we get to play? And like more than likely yes because of the Nations League. Um, yeah. So that's really what we're, we're what this all boils down to now. It's it's hard not to get into the Euros with uh, 24 teams out of what just over 50 nations. Mm. Nearly one and two. Um but I know sometimes you can have a situation where the where the teams like the French and the Dutch dip after big tournaments. Um and that might be the case, but I just think especially the French have just got too much quality. Uh, but they could both have managerial changes because Louis obviously is stepping down. Ronald Koeman's going to take over from him. And you could have a situation where Zidane is the new French coach. Mm. It's Greece I'm worried about, John. Yeah, well, Greece is the word. Like, it was, it was a, uh, they never made a, th- a third movie, did they? <laughs> um, there was another story about the Ireland situation. Oh, Gavin Bazoon is going to be number one ahead of Creevin um, Kelleher. You were talking to... Yeah, I was chatting to Paki Bonner yesterday at that event. Um, and like... He was very much talking about Bazuna versus Kelleher. He very much of the opinion that Kelleher needs the loan move. He needs to get the first team game time, which, yes. are, which is understandable. He's got the experience now of Liverpool, uh, training with Alisson, training with the top class coaches there. But he needs to go out. He needs to go out. He does. He does. Like, um, at this point, and you can see what Gavin Bazunu has. I know there's a lot of flux at Southampton, but you can just watch every time you watch match of the day or watch the Hampton game and he's making saves or, or if things aren't going his way you can, you can just tell the amount of experience he's gaining under his belt and just being behind hostile crowds or playing in a place like Anfield it's where obviously Keller would play but occasionally but 
Yeah, that's it's it's invaluable experience. David Steady even made that point on the show yesterday. He was kind of talking about going to the Man City Southampton game uh, this season, and and like, albeit Southampton or City won considerably, but only for Bazunu's saves, it would have been a lot worse. And his communication on the pitch with James Ward-Prowse and with his own defenders, he's like he's a leader now. Like he's not afraid to be verbal and shout at players. And you didn't really see that at the outset of his career, but now that he's getting the first team experience, that's what Kelleher needs. I'm not saying Kelleher's not verbal, but he's not getting enough game time to to build up rapport with players and to 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 be that leader in the in the back line. So certainly needs the needs the needs the loan move somewhere. I think mm. I've already decided my first World Cup shock will be Morocco to beat Croatia tomorrow. All right. Yeah, so I've decided the first shock. Right. That, that is a, a big call. Yeah. Croatia playing very well. That's the first call. All right, John. Good start. All right, lads. Thanks very much. <laughs> uh, OTBAM brought to you live with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. You can sign up or donate now at Movember dot com. Uh, if you want to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. Oh eight seven nine one eighty one eighty is the WhatsApp number. Or of course, you can always leave a comment on the YouTube stream. Uh, some comments for you. Well, we deleted them all there. So, someone says uh, Canada will get a result against Belgium. That's that would be a shock as well. I think Kev was saying like he, he thinks Belgium are a little bit scared, and that if they don't, they're screwed because he he thought that actually uh, Croatia would beat Canada, and that Canada were going to struggle there. So, um, Belgium are sell Belgium. They got Vertonghen and Alderweireld playing in the Jupiler Pro League now, and they're still the defenders. Sell them. Bit concerning. Sell the stock. Yeah. Sell the coat uh, door. You'd wonder, wouldn't you? Uh, it's 8.55, time for us to turn our attention to uh, Gaelic Games, and I'm delighted to welcome Jenny Moore to the show. Jenny, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning, how are you? Uh, it's a long way from the Kildare Miners to, um, is it Crave Rua? In, is it, are you Brussels-based? We're Brussels-based, yeah. Very we good. We usually go by Belgium, GA. Well, I was going to say, I did call you Belgium earlier on, and I was like, well, that'd be a whole country. So, But actually, fair enough. Um, Belgium, GA. So what's your story? How did you end up playing with them? Um, I moved to Brussels in November 2019 and then um, I started playing then the following season, February 2020. And we had about a month of training before the pandemic hit. So this was our first, well, my first year playing with Belgium where we could actually play competitive games. And you made it all the way to the All-Ireland Junior Club quarterfinals. Yeah. <laughs> That's not, not bad. So um, how do you get there even? What's the qualifying process? Well, in Europe, we usually play nine-a-side tournaments. So all year, we play regional tournaments first in Benelux. So it's Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and some teams from East Germany. Um, and then we have a tournament at the end of the year, the Pan Euros, which is Europe-wide. And we won all of those tournaments. But then we still had to play the 15-a-side to qualify out of Europe. They consider Europe like a county. Um, so we played Rennes in France, and we beat them, and then we were European champions. And then we went to Leeds to play Hugh O'Neill's. They were the All-British champions. And when we beat them, then we were into the All-Ireland quarterfinal. Okay. Was the game uh, against Hugh O'Neill's, did you expect to win that? Or was that considered a significant step up in quality? Um, I don't think we expected to win it, to be honest. And yeah, definitely a significant step up. Especially at this stage of the season, because we've been travelling so much all year, it's kind of hard to rally people and get them to go. So we travelled with 17 players Um and yeah, we were delighted to win that game. It's very tough. It was definitely the toughest game we played all year up until uh, last weekend. 
I suppose the difference then, Jenny playing a team like Casa Blaney, is, is that it's a parish team and, and, and you know, we're used to playing with each other, uh, a very local team as well. Whereas, like, looking at the, the locations of, of your squad yesterday, like Kilchamad, Johannesburg, Adelaide, Maynooth, Sao Paulo, Ballina, you are from basically everywhere. It's a United Nations team. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I'd say that is the difference. And with Casa Blaney, they, they they're a very young team, it seemed. Like, I'd say a lot of them would still be minor. Um, and the, one of the biggest differences I noticed was that they just put so much pressure on the ball. We wouldn't be used to that in Europe. Like, the second you have the ball, there's two of them on you straight away. But here in Europe, like, you get away with a lot more. I think definitely a huge step up once you go to Britain and then a step up again going to Ireland. But yeah, our team is full of people from everywhere. Um, some people that never played before, like Clara, she plays full forward for us. Well, she played at centre forward at the weekend. She only started playing in um, 2019. She's from Copenhagen. She scored 3-2 at the weekend. Wow. <laughs> so some of them just take to it like a duck to water. <laughs> That's not bad. Um can we go back to the game against the, the uh, team from Leeds? So uh, what was the score on that? How did that go? Um, that was 2-6 to 8 points. Okay, so you, uh, you won relatively well in the end, a four-point win. Um, and, like, again, presumably in England, it's very few players who are picking it up for the first time. Like, you just talked about Clara there. Mostly it'll be Irish people living in England playing. Am I right about that? Yeah, I think the whole Leeds team, they were all Irish Um because afterwards we all had dinner together and we were talking to a lot of them and yeah, they didn't have anyone that hadn't grown up playing. So it, that was like playing an Irish team, but they wouldn't be, I suppose they wouldn't be together as long as a club in Ireland, but yeah, they were all Irish and all quite experienced. And can I just ask then, like is the hope that um, a run like this keeps the panel together a bit more than maybe um, might otherwise be the case, that people will tend to come and go, kind of drop in and out, play a season. It's more of a lifestyle choice rather than you're born into this, you're going to do it for life. In Belgium, I'm talking about. Yeah. You see, the problem with Belgium is like some people are, are here for work usually and they're only here for six months or a year. And like there's <sighs> nothing we can really do to stop that. So like sometimes over the years, like some of the guys that are here a long time, they're talking about players, that, like amazing players that they had, but they were only here for a year or two. So yeah, that's something else we have to deal with. But I think for next year, most of our squad will be staying together. But there's an upside to that too. Like we never know who will join us next year either. So you know, it can go both ways. And uh, where do you recruit? Like, how do you find people who aren't Irish? Um, well, we train at a university, like on a rugby, an Astro rugby pitch on a university campus. And sometimes people just walk them by, <laughs> like wow. ask, what's this? And they come down, especially with the camogie. I remember one night there was a girl, she was living on campus and she said, I see this training like twice a week. And I used to play hockey. She's from Chile. Um, Marianne is her name. And she you know, saw the Kamogi twice a week and then she came down and asked, what is this sport and can I join? And yeah, she plays now. She's very good. She's actually the Kamogi officer this year. Um, same with the football. We do things to try and promote it. Like we have very good PRO and she promotes us a lot on social media. And then people coming from Ireland often would, would contact the club beforehand and ask, could, could they join? And then other people just maybe some girls play basketball with girls from Brussels. And then they ask them if they want to come try Gaelic football. So kind of different routes to get to recruit people. When, when you talk about the commitment of the, those non-Irish players as well, Jenny, I, I heard the story, your, your goalkeeper's from Greece. She had quite a, an interesting um, adventure trying to get her passport sorted for the, for the tournament in the UK. Yeah, um, she put a message in the group when we heard we were going to the UK saying, oh, remember, like, you need to have a passport to get here. 
sure all the Irish, like we all have passports because we needed to get in and out of Brussels from Ireland. But if you're in Europe, in the Schengen area, you don't need a passport to travel. So she was traveling everywhere in Europe, like going back and forth to Greece without a passport, just an identity card. So um, she couldn't get an appointment in, in the Greek embassy in Brussels until April, which would be too late, obviously. Um, so she flew back to Greece. Her dad got in the queue early in the morning because it's first come, first serve. Got the passport, but then she has to wait. She had to wait a week, I think, before it was processed. Um, and they wouldn't post it. They don't post passports, so she had to go back and collect it. Um, and she flew directly from Athens to Manchester for the game in Leeds. Serious commitment from Elena. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> yeah, it is a bit insane. <laughs> Worth it in the end, though. And once you get the result, you're happy enough. Um, yeah, it, it's a player-run club as well. Jenny, am I right in saying that? Yeah, completely. Like I know clubs in Ireland, you'd have so many people from outside helping out that don't play or past members. But here, it's totally club-run or player-run. Everyone on the committee is a player. Uh, with player coaches, we're lucky this year. We have a coach, but um, usually it's all the other codes. It's a player manager one or two players take training every week and yeah totally better run and I know like you get the grants from the LGFA for those trips to, to the All-Ireland tournaments so to the Britain or whatever but but excuse me uh, like the, the other tournaments within Europe when you're going to as you say Denmark or East Germany or uh, the Benelux countries like are you having to pay for that yourselves or how does that work? Yeah we have to pay for that ourselves um, usually for the closer tournaments in Benelux when we go to the Netherlands we drive and we go four or five in a car and go up and down the same day to keep the cost low. But then the Pan-European Championship was in Galicia this year, meant to fly, and, or you could go by train, but I mean, it would take a few days. But um, yeah, everyone had to foot the bill for that themselves. We do some fundraising, and sometimes we can use that to help the students out, but the majority of um, the travel, we, we foot, the bill, foot the bill ourselves. What do you get out of playing? Why, why do you do it? Um, well, it, it's... It's my favourite thing about Brussels is being back playing football. Um, I've met so many people through playing. Um, and like when you go for a weekend away, yeah, we play a tournament for the day, but it's like going away with your friends for the weekend. Um, I think the social aspect is probably the best part. The uh, the management team I find interesting, uh, Jenny, Cosmos Gilmore, like people in Galway will be familiar with him. He's, he's a Longford man, but uh, led the Galway men's under 20s team to All-Ireland success in 2020 so what his story was essentially that he was moving to Belgium and looking for a team to, to take over and, and it was yourselves that managed to, to get him on board I guess um, Yeah he, he came over here on secondment I think it was last year that he yeah it was early last year and he messaged the club um, I think he actually wanted to take on the men's team but they had a player manager at the time who was doing well with the team so um, then Anai Rios who was our player manager she convinced him to take over our team. Um, he had never trained ladies before, but he seems to enjoy it. So hopefully we'll keep him for another while. Well, it's but it's great. Like it's it's really changed our training. Like it's so much more intense when he's there. It's so much better when someone from outside comes in. Like he just has more respect and um, the intensity just went way higher once he started training us. Well, obviously doing something right. The, uh, the season's been incredibly successful. That difference between nine aside and 15 aside and only having 17 players, you don't obviously get to play 15 aside very often. So again, it, it's actually a completely different game, right? Yeah, completely. And with the nine aside, we hand pass it up the pitch the whole time. Like we don't really kick it very often. 
and we always go for goals. But like I think that told on Saturday when like our scoreline of five two, um, we were still going for goals, and we didn't really have the range to kick from outfield. But Casablanca were able to kick points from everywhere. So with the nine aside, like you don't really have the chance to kick. The goals are much smaller as well, so we don't really kick points from far out. But it's something that we'll have to work on if we want to play the fifteens next year. Um, but that that's one of the main differences is like kicking the ball and kicking for points from range. Is that why the the game against against Blaney had to be in Maastricht as opposed to Brussels? Is your pitch not the the full dimensions, or is there a reason for the nine aside? It's not the full dimension. Yeah, there's only two fifteen side pitches in Europe, the right like regulation size, um, in Ren and in Maastricht. So Maastricht's our home venue if we have to play fifteen side. It's about an hour and ten minutes drive from Brussels. Um, yeah, so we don't really ever train on a 15 side pitch either. We train on a rugby pitch, an Astro rugby pitch. But we usually only have half the pitch for training because with the four codes we share for three hours, like an hour and a half each train, or an hour and 15 minutes each training, and we've half the pitch. Basically, you need somebody in the European Parliament rec- recruitment section to go through CVs looking for uh, inter-county Gaelic footballers to come to Brussels for the next couple of years. Basically, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great if we could recruit that way. Well, if you have people from, if you have Clara Lambert from Copenhagen, well, is it scoring three two? Having taken up taken up the sport a couple of years ago, yeah. that's they're clearly clearly taking up the as you say, like a fish to water. That's unbelievable. Yeah, that was her second time to ever play a fifteen side game. <laughs> My God! So you keep, know, I think with her. a bit more practice, we could be yeah. even better. Jenny, good stuff. Congratulations on a great season. Thanks a million for joining us this morning and sharing the story with us. Thanks a million. Said Jenny Moore there from uh, Belgium GA, uh, based in Brussels in the Netherlands, who were beaten unfortunately in the All Ireland Ladies Junior Quarter Final, losing to uh, Monhans Castle Blaney at the weekend. A reminder: OTBAM brought to you live with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. You can sign up or donate now at movember.com. Here's what's on OTB Sports Radio for you today. One o'clock is OTB Gold. Keith Andrews meeting Philly McMahon. Dadcast at three. A career retrospective from Andy Moran at four. Course Daunton is OTB Gold, a bit of a Mayo theme across the afternoon. And the show's live tonight with Joe. Brian O'Driscoll will reflect on Ireland's November series. James Corrigan, the golf correspondent, will talk about waiting his entire life to see Wales play football at the World Cup, but now has to fly home instead. And there's plenty more besides. You can follow OTB across all our social channels and subscribe to the OTB Podcast Network for all the best in the latest sports content. After this break, we're back with the former Ulster and Ireland flanker Stephen Ferris. OTB AM Well, OTB AM brought to you live with Gillette in association with Movember Effortless Shave Magnificent Mo. You can sign up or donate now at Movember.com Now, I'm delighted to say we are joined by the former Irish international and Ulster rugby player Stephen Ferris who's on board this year as one of the ambassadors for the Gold Mile which is proudly supported by AIB This Christmas, AIB is encouraging communities across the island of Ireland to step up together and re-establish the tradition of taking part in the Gold Mile. People and communities across Ireland can step up together to take part by visiting goldmile.org. Stephen, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. Uh, Very well, thanks. It's been a a while since I've been on, lads. So um, I know there's a few hot talking points that you might want to drag out of me from the last couple of weeks so I'm looking forward to the next 15-20 minutes yeah me too before we get to that right the the goal mile was one of those traditions that um, we would have done as a family kind of over the last five or six years but with Covid it disappeared so this is a real opportunity for everybody to just remember that it's a good idea to like not just lie on the couch for 48 hours on <laughs> uh, Christmas Eve 
Christmas Day, Stephen's Day, uh, get out and you know get some fresh air into your lungs. Yeah, absolutely. Get out and meet up with a few friends. You know, around the Christmas period, this is the 40th anniversary of it. Been going a long time. Um, obviously, goal the charity. You know, does such good work um, around numerous countries. And you know, if you can just get up and, and be a part of it and sign up, as, as you said, Jerry. You know, all the information's on the website. Um, I'm going to be getting out there. I was down in Dublin there a number of weeks ago, meeting up with the rest of the ambassadors, and I didn't actually realise how, how, how much of a you know. I much people get involved in this. You know, I'm sort of a little bit, you know, out of the loop here in, in Belfast. And, you know, it's really, really big down south. And um, I can't wait to be a part of it this year. Yeah, fingers crossed everybody uh, supports it because, as you said, it's for an absolutely great cause. Um, so let's, let's talk rugby, right? The, the first part we should start with is that we have a back rower who is the best player in the world over the last 12 months. It's a remarkable achievement for Josh van der Fleer because... You know, frequently it's the nines and tens, it's the try scores, or it's like the very flashy players. But sometimes, as you know, back rowers don't get all the credit they deserve. Josh van der Fleer finally getting the credit. Yeah, definitely. Especially when they make the most tackles, they make the most carries, they make the most turnovers. Um, they probably train more than anybody. So, uh, yeah, what an achievement from him. I think he's been so durable as well this year. Um, just seems to be playing on the edge all the time but it's just you know turns it out week in and week out and I think the reason one of the main reasons why his name is is now on that of being the world player of the year is because he's been the most consistent player for me he's been extraordinary for Ireland um, anytime he's playing for Leinster he's been you know man of the match or, ne- or nearly thereabouts um, and all credit to him I met Josh I've met him a handful of times obviously but met him what five or six years ago you know quite a nice quiet fella um, he's talked about he hasn't talked about himself but when he accepted this award he just talked about everybody else that's helped, helped him get there and I think you know he'd be very very proud and his family as well be very very proud but what a player um, I wish I had, a, had the opportunity to play alongside somebody like Josh van der Fleer because he, he would have made a few of my tackles for me Jer That back row at the moment is very difficult to get into Um and Nick Timoney is right there. Like it, it was interesting that they're they're kind of they want to see what he's like. I'd love to see what a back row, you know, horses for courses selection might do, where you have Timoney and Van der Fleer. The way Australia occasionally would do that with two sevens and just be like, well, we're just going to absolutely smother the opposition today. Now, this is nothing against any of the other back rowers who are in the team or in the squad, but wouldn't it be good for us just to experiment a little bit to see? Okay, there might be an occasion where we decide that our game is going to be. With that, am I completely mad here? No, no, not, not at all. I think I think Nick Timoney and Josh van der Fleer are both better ball carriers than Michael Hooper and, say, Papalihi for you know New Zealand. I think they're much stronger car- uh, ball carriers. Maybe, you know, obviously over the ball and um, tackle technique and being able to slow the rock, um, you know, is much of a muchness. But Nick Timoney has been exceptional for Ulster over the last couple of seasons, scoring tries. I think it was the start of last season. He had five or six tries in the opening five or six games. Sort of went off a little bit. Um, but yeah, there, there's no doubt in his pedigree, sevens, background. He just seems to have an engine on him. Like his pace doesn't change from the first minute to the 80th minute. He just keeps going at that explosive, powerful, um, you know, very dynamic pace, especially the same as Josh. Like the boys come off after eighty minutes, and they look like they could go for another eighty minutes. It's um, it's extraordinary. Is it more important than ever as well, Stephen? In a in a World Cup year, 
to experiment in the Six Nations. We kind of spoke with, with Ali Quinlan about this yesterday in terms of the, the number 10s, whether it's Carberry or whoever else, Crowley getting the experience and Ross Byrne as well. Do you need to uh, have that, I guess, little bit of experimentation and make sure the players in actual games that mean something are used to stepping up to the plate? Yeah, Shane, like I've been crying out for the last three or four seasons, even in the tour to New Zealand, um, about experimenting and bringing other people in. But the top international rugby is just all about results and it's all about getting victories. And for Andy Farrell to put five or six lads in in the opening game against Wales away from home in the Six Nations and all of a sudden, you know, they're obviously backed into a corner at the minute with the, the loss to Georgia. So if they get a result, then all of a sudden it's Ireland. We know how fickle and how international sport can turn on its head within one game, never mind, you know, a full Six Nations campaign. So I think Andy Farrell's got to be very cute and careful with his team selection throughout the Six Nations. Yes, there is opportunity to give guys um, a run, give them a chance. The likes of, you know, Frawley, if he gets himself fit, put him behind a full-strength Irish pack in one or two of the games, see how he goes. If that's Crowley or if it's Carberry, then, then, then they can make those decisions. But I've said it for the last two years, like, I, I don't think that there's going to be somebody completely left field that's going to come in and start in a rub, uh, start for Ireland in the Rugby World Cup in the first or second game. Uh, it, it just feels like it's a very settled squad. It feels like there's, there's only two or three lads are going to get in ahead of somebody just because of an injury, not because they're playing really, really well. And like I could maybe name off the team that I personally think is going to start if everybody's fighting fit in the Rugby World Cup. I'm sure your, your two teams would be very, very similar. And that's been the case for the last couple of seasons. Is that a little bit concerning? Does it kind of smack a little bit of some yeah. preparation that we've had in previous World Cups? Of course it is. Of course it's a concern. Um, you know, Johnny played against South Africa. Jeez, we didn't play brilliantly, but, we, you know, we were, we were up there. Um, we, we met them with the physicality, far, far with far, and Johnny seemed to lead the troops really well. And then their performance just dropped off against Fiji. I find myself chatting to people in the crowd for the majority of that match because it was just, it was a non-contest and, it was just a rate just didn't get going. And then all of a sudden there was a you know, Johnny pulls out in the warm up um against Australia. And again it was a really disappointing game. I think, you know, people had paid their entrance fee, maybe got their money's worth out of the last five or six minutes of the game. But apart from that, that was it. And that's just taking one player out, Jer. You know, if if you took two or three out like we seen in the World Cup quarter final twenty fifteen, you know, taking a handful of the senior players out, you know, they're really underperformed. Um and you know, that's that's always the concern. That's the worry. And you just look at the other teams. New Zealand seem to be picking up a bit of form again. South Africa, you know, the squad depth that they have. Their URC teams are playing very, very well. Um, and yeah, well, we're just going to have to see how the season plays out. But we we got to keep a consistency in our game because going into previous World Cups, there was a drop-off for sure. The Fiji and Australia games almost ended losing more than just the the kicking when, when Johnny Sexton's not on the pitch. Like there's the and Brent Pope was really interesting on this after the match with our, with ourselves uh, on Saturday evening when he's talking about you know sometimes the second rowers and the back rowers they, they, just, they just want to get on with the game. Uh, whereas Johnny has has a leadership position. He's he's vocal. He's you know he's leading the team in terms of the next moves, and that's that seems to be quite lacking when he's not on the pitch. It does. And, you know, Peter O'Mahony last minute had to be brought in as captain at the, at, at the weekend. And that was probably his poorest game for Ireland in, 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 in a long while. 
And maybe he's just at a stage in his career where he likes to focus and concentrate on his own personal responsibilities um, uh, on the pitch. And, you know, Johnny's a very good way with the referees. Of course, we all know he does go over the line from time to time. But like Ben O'Keefe at the weekend, 38 penalties he gave in the game. Uh, or sorry, 24 penalties he gave in the game. There was 38 lineouts in the game. Um, just stop, start, stop, start. It's just no flow whatsoever. Um, and you know the other games that were being played, this um, New Zealand game, the French game, so much more flow. Is that just down to a captain? Is that down to you know, like to Johnny being on the pitch? I think a little bit, yes. Um, and you know, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that if Johnny Sexton isn't playing for Ireland, we're not going to play to the same level. And you know, speaking to people, fans walking into the stadium. Um, that's just what's been in everybody's lips for the last couple of weeks, but it's been in everybody's lips, uh, realistically, lads, for the last seven years, <laughs> and and um, unfortunately, we're still sitting in that situation. Yeah, I mean, I look, I have I have a lot of sympathy here with the coaching ticket as well, where Sexton's game continues to be at a very high level. So it's not like yeah. there's an obvious number two. So we'd like to see Joey Carberry get more game time, but he hasn't been fit when the opportunities have presented themselves. And so therefore, you have to bear his injury profile in mind. Um, we we thought Frawley was going to get it, but it turns out 10 get injured a lot. Like, Harry Byrne was the anointed successor two and a half years ago, hasn't played really any meaningful rugby since. Ross Byrne is the only one who seems unbreakable. And for whatever reason, like he's like fourth or fifth on the depth chart, happy to show up and kick when he needs to so I don't know maybe there is room for uh, Ross Byrne being a hero for Ireland in a World Cup quarter final I think there is like I think there's certainly a place for somebody who can, you can rely on to come on kick a winning penalty to come on kick the corners like Ross Byrne of what 90 odd percent kicking accuracy in the in the URC for Leinster he never lets them down yes he's a, he's a, he's a little bit deeper than Johnny when he's um, you know trying to get the, the Leinster attack on or the Ireland attack on I think he was a bit of a, a scapegoat as well for you know Ireland's big loss before the Rugby World Cup in 2019 when they lost 57 points to 15 in Twickenham. I was there that day. I was working the game and nobody showed up for Ireland, but yet everybody was just talking about Ross Byrne wasn't able to get the Irish team going and you know he's not up to international level and blah, blah, blah and all the rest of it. Well, I think he showed at the weekend that when the pressure's on and the referee's shouting in his ear that you've only 20 seconds to go, and you're stepping up. And I tell you what, that wasn't an easy kick. And it was a long kick as well. And he stroked it over, no problem, ran back to the halfway and got his team um, over the line in that game. So anybody who doubted his bottle or you know questioned his, his attitude or his credentials in the international rugby, I think he answered a lot of those critics with, with, with just knocking over that penalty. And who knows, he, you know, Jerry, he, he could be the, the guy who could be sitting on the bench in, in a rugby World Cup in the, the opening two or three games because as you rightly say he only he seems to be the only one that is playing consistent rugby because the rest and like it's it's it, it really is a concern when you know second third fourth choice out half are, are getting very little game time um and that's not just in a green jersey that's in a, a red of Munster or uh, a blue of Leinster you know yeah like Crowley's game time is has been almost as much for Ireland this season as it has because he's actually not first choice 10 or maybe they're going to move um, Carberry to 15 and pick Crowley at 10 I don't know it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with the provinces and how much influence 
uh, or much pressure they might feel from the Ireland selectors to pick the Ireland players in their positions. So it's a, a very weird period over the next five, six months where everything feels a little bit fake. But actually, at the same time, the Six Nations is there to be won. And Johnny Sexton was talking about winning stuff. And we haven't won anything since it was at 18 or 19. Um, so he, he doesn't want to be left out of the big games. He wants to play against France and England next year in particular. And I'm sure when your captain is saying, what are you doing not picking me? You have to pick me. It's hard to have those conversations. It's hard to have those conversations. The other thing people don't understand, I was saying that again at the weekend at the game, uh, chatting to a few of the Aussie fans, oh, why is Johnny starting? This is obviously 15, 20 minutes before he actually didn't play because of, because of injury. And I was like, hold on a second. Johnny's got, what, four games left at the Aviva? Three, four? You've got France and England at home, maybe a couple of Rugby World Cup uh, warm-up games, and that is it. He said to everybody he's going to retire after the Rugby World Cup. So, like, do you reckon he's just going to go, ah, you know what, I'm, I'm grand, like, you know, you you play the, you play against England, you play against France. Like, that, he wants to keep writing his legacy into the history books of, of beating these big teams on the home patch and, you know, enjoying these final moments. We all know, you know, Rory Best, I got a, you know, the send off that he wanted. Geez, he had his kids on the pitch every week for about three years. But, um, you know, (laughs) Johnny's going to want to be able to enjoy those special moments with his family and big wins at home in in the last couple of games. And um, is there going to be that up window of opportunity for Andy Farrell to tweak and, um, you know, bring in other guys? If you're Johnny Saxon, probably not. A couple of Ulster backs uh, putting their hands up as well for, for maybe a bit more inclusion, Stephen, in, in Robert Balakoon and, and Stuart McCluskey. Uh, and look, the, the, the depth chart there is is fairly deep, so it's not easy, but uh, both did quite well over the last three games. Yeah, they did quite well. Like, Rob Balakoon, I, I watch him, obviously, week in, week out. Um, Pierce to burn. See very good under the high ball. Not a bad kicking game, but he just doesn't seem as busy as like a Mac Hanson or a James Lowe. And, and people say oh yeah he just hangs out on his wing I don't think he's obviously he's tracking back and forth chasing kicks up and down up and down the pitch I just think it comes with experience it comes with being able to look for an opportunity around the breakdown being able to you know back yourself in certain situations and yes like wingers have to hold their width as well you know you've got to spread the defence and if it's one on one and he's 10 or 15 yards to get in in the try line you would back him to get there but I don't think he's Ireland's number one uh, winger, or number two winger. I think you know James Lowe is definitely in there as well. You got to look at you know obviously Andrew Conway's to come back in. Keith Earls will he recapture uh, or capture a bit of form? Sorry, um, like he showed five or six years ago, possibly. Uh, so there's plenty of depth in the back three, and um, you know I think you know the big talking point for me was Stuart McCluskey coming into the Autumn Internationals. Would he get a run? Would Andy Farrell have trust in him to put him in there and get a run? And I, like, leading into the first game, like, maybe an hour before the team was announced, I was like, no, nah, he's not going to pick him. And he'll not pick him on the bench either because, you know, he's only played 12, really. And then all of a sudden he was in there and I was like, do you know what? I, I think that sends a message to a lot of people in Ireland, a lot of the players in Ireland, a lot of the guys you're playing week to week, brilliant rugby, uh, because Stuart's been exceptional for Ulster over the last couple of seasons and he thoroughly deserves a spot really disappointed obviously he didn't get more game time in the South African uh, game first up but he didn't really put a foot wrong and um, you know Bundy come on and scored a decisive try against uh, against Australia which I'm sure Stuart 
deep down wouldn't have really liked to be honest <laughs> <laughs> he would have been the oh, yeah, bollocks but um, yeah he, he, he's a quality operator and I think he certainly has a spot in Andy Farrell's Rugby World Cup squad yeah and the thing is if anybody gets injured everybody's happy for him to go in like he's he's finally using his bulk and his heft in a in meaningful way one other player that I just wanted to get your impression on here before we go is, is Mike Lowry who come in with such with such high hopes that he might be a bit of a, a joker a bit of a game changer somebody who could go in in a number of positions in case of emergency but it hasn't quite worked out for him over the November Internationals no it hasn't and Jerry, I'm, I'm not really sure why because I, I thought he might have been injured or picked up a knock or you know why, why did he not get a, a run against Fiji um, it's a bit of a strange one you know Jimmy O'Brien sort of came out of the, uh, the woodwork as you know, he's obviously played very very well but I expected Mikey to get some game time and when he played against was at Italy and, you know, scored a brace and, you know, sent James Lowe over as well. You know, very, very unselfishly, you know, he could have scored a hat trick and, you know, he, he, he ran in, he could have got the headlines. And I, I just think that, yeah, uh, people always ask us, is he too small for international rugby? Is he just, you know, you look at Cheslin Colby, Arenza for um, South Africa and on the wings, they do have a bit more about them, a bit more size about them. Um, they obviously both play in the wing as well. Um, and Mikey Lara, yes, he's been exceptional for Ulster over, over, since he made his debut, really, and, and brilliant for Ireland. But I'm just not sure. I just think there's other lads there that um, maybe are a bit more steady under the high ball and um, a little, maybe a little bit more reliable. But, you know, Mikey Lara, I really did think he was going to get a shot. Unfortunately, is, is there going to be ch- a chance in the Six Nations, Jared? Probably not. Doesn't look like it. Just uh, briefly, Stephen, I know it's not a conversation really that, that leads itself to a brief one, but the um, the Nick White issue that, that uh, came up in the, the Australia game, unsteady on his feet, and I know it led to a bit of a uh, back and forth on Virgin Media uh, after the match between Matt Williams and um, and Rob Carney. Carney saying you have to err on the side of caution when it comes to potential concussion, and Matt kind of saying you have to put the, the trust and the faith in the medical professionals. Um, it's reared its ugly head again, this topic, and I know the HIA process is far from perfect, but I guess it is one of rugby's biggest uh, questions and concerns at the moment. Yeah, it sure is. I could probably sit on with you lads for another 20 minutes uh, and talk about this. Uh, and Matt Williams is, you know, he, he's a calculated guy. I, I work with Matt. He's very calculated. He knows what he's going to say. It's the last game of the Autumn Internationals. It's a perfect opportunity for him to get his name in lights, to start talking about science. He's talking out of his backside. Uh, let's be honest with you. And, like, you can go in and say, oh, um, you know, it's the doctor's fault. You know, they've come out and said the independent doctor, he didn't see the second, you know, where, where Nick White had his head off the ground. And I have a little bit of sympathy with that doctor because he mightn't. And when you get called for an HIA, he's maybe on his way into the change room, doesn't get to see the big screens. He's just going to perform an HIA. It's the Australian doctors that need to take responsibility. They're the ones that treated Nick White on the pitch. They're the ones that seen him stumble in front of him. They're the ones that looked into his eyes and seen his eyes glazed over. And, you know, that independent doctor seems to be the one that's in the firing line at the minute. Why? It's The questions need to be answered by the Australian doctors, the Australian uh, medical staff, because it was unacceptable. He should not have been brought back onto the pitch. And Matt Williams, put your trust and faith in science. How about you put your trust and faith in your own personal judgment and your own experience 
And that's what the, you know, the, the, the Australian medical staff didn't do. And you can put 100 people in with a concussion and do the HIA test or whatever it is. And I bet you not every single 100 people out of that test will pass it. You know, so if, for, for me, it was, uh, you know, there needs to be lessons, more lessons learned. Jesus, lads, many times we're going to bloody yeah. talk about this. I'm, I'm, sick, I'm sick of family, friends, close, um, anybody close to me going, oh, geez. Uh, what, what you know? If, if it's going on at this level, what's happening in mini rugby? What's happening when I send my young kid up to Belfast Harlequins or Dungannon or you know Gary Ohm, wherever it may be, to go you know play mini rugby if they're taking banks in the head and you know they're, they're looking at um, lads on the TV being brought back on when obviously they are concussed. And what do we have now, lads? Nick White's been stood down. Yeah. So, like, it's uh, it, it's something I know. There's been a lot of chat about it, and and uh, probably everybody's regurgitating the same information. But there there has to be a stance on this because it, it's just not good enough. And just to reference again, Matt Williams, you know, talking about put her faith in science. You know, you you've got that all wrong. Stephen, always great to have you with us. Thanks a million. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, lads. It's uh, Stephen Ferris there, helping to promote the uh, sponsorship by AAB of the Goal Mile, which you can uh, find out more about, as he said, on the website. A reminder, the show is brought to you live with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. You can sign up or donate now at Movember.com. We will obviously be talking to Matt sooner rather than later, hopefully, to get his uh, considered take on events. Uh, over the next while but that is it for today's show if you've missed anything from our programme today you can get it back on podcast you'll find all of our best stuff on the OTB Sports app um, the latest episode of the football pod is there Jason Sherlock tests to Paddy and James about his new role at Westmeath in OTB Rugby you'll find Monday Night Rugby with Andy Dunn and Jerry Thornley and uh, make sure you subscribe to OTB Football where we'll keep you up to date with everything from the World Cup this month Pat Nevin and Dion Fanning joined Joe Malloy last night for the football show and our World Cup daily brief is out now as well tomorrow Keith Wood Jess Kelly on the best deals for Black Friday more World Cup from Qatar and plenty more besides OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember effortless shave magnificent mode